BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is the plane supposed to be flying so close to the mountains? That was the last thing a passenger of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 said before the plane crashed into the Andes Mountains. The plane carried 45 passengers and crew, most of whom were members of an Uruguayan rugby team, a few friends and family, and one woman who bought a seat to attend her daughter's wedding. What was supposed to be a two-hour flight to Chile for a rugby match turned into an unbelievably harrowing and horrifying ordeal that would test the passengers' physical and mental strength and their will to survive. And many would not survive. For those who didn't die in the initial crash, they would suffer for up to 72 days in what would become known as the Valley of Tears. In the end, only 16 of the original 45 would come out alive. The passengers of Flight 571 faced extreme weather, avalanches, a variety of injuries, sickness, sun blindness, thirst, and starvation so severe, they were forced to eat the bodies of their friends and family who lay in the snow next to them if they wanted to entertain any chance of continuing to exist. Tragedy after tragedy struck the survivors until two of them set out on foot on day 60, determined to either hike out of the Andes or die trying to find help. Nando Parado and Roberto Canessa, the group's expeditionaries, would save their friends from certain death. But they aren't the only heroes in this story. Every passenger played a role in the group's survival, from organizing and rationing food, butchering bodies, delegating chores, to keeping people's spirits up with prayers and stories. What the surviving 16 men would go through was something very few people will ever experience in their lifetimes. The true story of these passengers has provided a case study on modern cannibalism, mental and physical toughness, teamwork in desperate situations, and the human survival instinct and will to live. These survivors have said that although the human flesh gave their bodies just enough energy to survive the mountains, their desire to live, to see their families again, to tell their story to others, to help each other, that is what really got them out alive. Could you do it? Could you survive being stranded amongst the freezing, barren peaks of the Andes Mountains? Would you be able to eat your best friends if that was your only survival option? Would you try to hike out yourself in sub-zero temperatures with no equipment, no protective gear, rather than wait for rescue? After hearing the story of the miracle of the Andes, I'm guessing you'll feel a huge amount of admiration for the survivors and what they went through. During this story, though, you'll probably oftentimes feel disgusted and horrified. I sure did. Settle in for one hell of a survival tale on today's Could You Actually Do This? Even If Your Life Depended On It edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Michael motherfucking McDonald. Uh, Tis the season for him once again. Summer finally came to Coeur d'Alene. The sun has been out. The lake has been beautiful. And I feel like a new person. It's Yacht Rock o'clock, you beautiful bastards. Hope you're able to get outside and enjoy the simple beauty of nature and some good weather. Uh, I forgot to wish anyone a happy Father's Day on time. Gave a belated greeting last week. Now going to give a belated happy Juneteenth uh, greeting this week. I am terrible with holidays especially when I record in advance. If only there was uh, something called a calendar on my phone that I could easily access in like one second. 
Uh, how about just one quick announcement this week before uh, another hopefully very gripping tale? A little different type of merch in the Bad Magic store. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com. Check out the new Atomic Pennant. Classic Atomic logo on a black and blue dowel rod championship style pennant. Be a time stuck fucking champion. Get off the bench. Get in the game. I don't even know how that relates to this. Uh, show your time suck love in your home, office, basement, boat, shed, kill room, doomsday bunker. It doesn't matter. Put it on your, put it on your riding lawnmower. Available now at badmagicmerch.com. And that is it for announcements. So what are we talking about today? Death and life in the Andes. The peaks of the Andes Mountains and the area around them, one of the harshest high-altitude barren environments in the world. Kind of like a high-altitude Antarctica in the middle of the South America. Just how did the passengers of Flight 571 uh, end up stranded in the Valley of Tears? And what kind of conditions did they face during their grueling, torturous 72 days on a frozen mountain? Would they have survived had they not been strengthened by the nutritious and delicious Papa John pizza? Better ingredients, better pizza, better human flesh, better pizza, Papa John's. Better organs of your closest friends, better take what you can get when you don't have pizza, Papa John's. Why am I talking about Papa John's again this week? Let's just, uh, let's just go ahead and start this story. On October 13th, 1972, 45 passengers and crew boarded Flight 571, not knowing, of course, that only 16 of them would ever make it back home alive. The majority of the passengers were members of the old Christians rugby team from Stella Maurice College, a.k.a. the Christian Brothers College of Montevideo, Montevideo, a private college with a reputation for having a, a good rugby team located in the capital and largest city of Uruguay. About 2 million people currently live in uh, Monta, Montevideo, Video, Video, Montevideo. There we go. Montevideo. Could not remember the syllabic uh, emphasis. Uh, Uruguay, uh, not a very popular country. Or populist, Jesus, that's a very different. Not a very popular. People fucking hate it. It's shit. It's shithole. No, no, it's a great country. It's not very populous. Uh, only around three and a half million people lived in the entire nation. There's uh, Montevideo, and then there are the suburbs of Montevideo. And uh, after that, just a collection of a few small cities of under 100,000 people each along the borders with Brazil and Argentina and not much else population center-wise, just a, just a bunch of rural areas and small villages. Uh, super cool country that I've actually been reading up on the past uh, year here and there. Clearly, I haven't been uh, uh, listening to a lot of videos on it where the pronunciation becomes second nature. A uh, great place for U.S. expats to live other than just being uh, so damn far away from almost everything else in the world. But uh, this little Atlantic Ocean-facing Spanish-speaking nation uh, south of Brazil, east of Argentina, has a high-income economy, ranked first in all of Latin America in democracy, peace, and low perception of corruption, also super socially progressive, uh, have very relaxed drug laws, uh, contribute more troops per capita to the U uh, UN, to their peacekeeping missions, than any other nation in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So go Uruguay. Uh, the Uruguayan rugby players on Flight 571 back in 1972 were uh, great friends, almost like brothers. And they'd uh, spent months learning to work together as a team before their crash. Many of the survivors would end up agreeing that this is what allowed them to survive for so long. The fact that they could work well as a group and that they were very committed, emotionally attached to one another. The struggle for survival was so intense that some of the survivors would later say that uh, had they known what was going to happen to them, they would have given up, not wanting to suffer through it all. Some have said they might have just accepted their fate as soon as the plane crashed, letting the icy mountains freeze them to death that very first night. But they didn't. Instead, the survivors worked together to create uh, what they called a snow society where everyone had an important role. And thanks to them all working together and thanks to the leadership of a few brave men, 
they were able to survive through something that appeared to be uh, impossible to live through to many. According to Roberto Conesa, uh, one of the survivors appreciating the joy of just living, even in the most dire of circumstances. That was one of the most important things he did to overcome death, his attitude. In an interview with National Geographic, decades after making it out, uh, off the mountains, he said, who survived? It wasn't the smartest, most intelligent ones. The ones who survived were those who felt the joy of living. What he says that reminds me of our 2020 year-end Viktor Frankl suck. Remember him, the noted psychologist? Came up with a psychological school of thought, logotherapy, while surviving the horrors of the Holocaust as a Jewish uh, concentration camp victim. He was surrounded by death. He studied it. He made note of what qualities people who could survive the horror possessed and also what qualities uh, those who didn't had. He would base logotherapy in three primary tenets. One, life has meaning under all circumstances, even the most miserable ones. Two, our main motivation for living is our will to find meaning in life. Three, we have freedom to find meaning in what we do and what we experience, or at least in the stance we take when faced with a situation of unchangeable suffering. I think Knessa is speaking about the same thing, right? The survivors of Flight 71, those lucky enough not to be critically injured, uh, were able to survive in large part because they, they still found meaning in their lives in the direst of circumstances. Their will was strong. They kept their attitude positive, as positive as could be in that situation. They chose to hang on to hope, even in the most hopeless of situations. The survivors experienced conditions that professional climbers, full-time residents of the Andes Mountains would never want to be in. Never choose to put themselves in conditions they uh, actively avoid. In this episode, we'll discuss the conditions of the Andes Mountains, who settled there centuries ago, how they adapted to live amongst its peaks, uh, what weather conditions are like there, conditions that would, of course, greatly impact the ability to survive for members of Flight 71's crash, and we'll examine the full 72-day timeline of the survivors' harrowing tale of their days on the mountain. Let's first really uh, familiarize ourselves with the Andes, its people, history, geography, Help us really wrap our meat sack minds around what the plane crash survivors were up against. And also just learn some cool shit about a really interesting place. Although many people think of South America as a continent with tropical rainforests, warm sunny beaches, hot summer days. And uh, there are plenty of that uh, in South America, or is plenty of that. There are also parts of the continent that remain frozen year round, specifically high up in the Andes Mountains. It's actually one of the most inhospitable environments in the world. As the altitude increases, almost all signs of life cease to exist. Despite these conditions, there are a lot of people who figured out how to live and work in the rugged Andes. Their bodies have evolved and adapted over time to survive the especially harsh conditions there. And those people are the people that uh, we're most proud to say work for Papa John's Pizza. Better bodies, better people. Papa John's. I wish I knew I, uh, how to get that out of my head. <laughs> I'm coming up with these notes. It was all I could think about. Uh, but seriously, people in the, in the Andes have literally evolved to adapt themselves better to high-altitude living, continually amazed at what a resilient and adaptive species we meet sacks are. These people are often uh, referred to as Andean. Andean is a general term to describe people who live in the mountains. Uh, important to remember the mountains span multiple countries. Uh, people uh, uh, you know, who are classified as Andean speak multiple languages. There are uh, you know, a variety of unique cultures that exist under that umbrella term. Uh, we'll briefly go over a bit of this. Uh, Andean includes parts of Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Venezuela, not Uruguay. Uh, each area relies on the mountains for different economic reasons. Uh, you know, really want to uh, weave some uh, reasons into another Papa John reference right now, but not going to, willpower. Thank you for the strength, Nimrod. Oldest human re remains found on this mountain, uh, 10,000 to 12,000 years old. Uh, fairly recent in terms of human history. 
understandably, the Andes, uh, you know, probably not one of our ancestors' first choices when it came to uh, where to settle down. Hmm, where to live? Warm beach near so many delicious fish, yummy fruit and vegetables, and amazing soul-nourishing weather that almost never kills us or makes our joints ache? Or should we live in a rocky, frozen, barren wasteland full of almost nothing but death and cold? Uh, Despite no actual remains being found yet, most historians agree that human habitation of the Andes began earlier than 12,000 years ago. It's especially hard to say with any real certainty, partially because modern documented history uh, didn't begin until the 16th century. By the 1530s, when the Spanish arrived in the region, the mountains were already widely populated and the indigenous people knew the land well. They'd long ago constructed a sophisticated system of cities and roads. When people stereotypically think of the Andes as bleak and economically destitute, people like this idiot right here, uh, maybe we tend to forget that the Andes were uh, what they were like when the land was conquered by the Aztec and Inca empires. It was full of thriving cultures, archaeology, city, pa- city planning, advanced technology. All of that continued to most areas until the damn naughty boy, naughty girl Spaniards showed up, mostly naughty boys, bringing new diseases and a general policy of assimilate, be subjugated, or, you know, fucking brutally die. The Spanish invasion led to a massive decline in the quality of life over the first several centuries following their arrival. For the, for the local people, at least. The Spaniards did, they, you know, they did fucking great. They thrived, made a lot of money, sent a lot of gold back to the crown at a lot of other people's expense. Oh, when the Spaniards conquered the area, they shifted industry from agriculture to the extraction of precious minerals, something that still dominates the economy today. The Andes today are actually less populated, less urbanized than they were over five centuries ago in 1500 CE. And that is uh, unusual. Not many other places on earth are less urban than they were over half a millennium ago. Historians agree that human occupation likely began in parts of the Andes as far back as 20,000 years ago. Then it took over 10,000 years to transition from hunter-gatherer societies to agrarian-based cultures. The development of agriculture uh, occurred around 8,000 years ago when humans in the Andes developed specialized tools and techniques for farming, you know, so they could gather better ingredients. You get it. Uh, Two big accomplishments made the mountains fully inhabitable. Uh, adapting many crops to be better suited to the altitude and domesticating llamas and alpacas for help with packing goods, farming, and having a reliable and renewable source of protein year-round. I can't remember which one of those uh, animals I ate when I was down in Peru. I just remember it made Monroe super sad. I think it was an alpaca. I think I had an alpaca steak. It was delicious. There's one you're not supposed to eat, one you are supposed to eat. Uh, One incentive for settling at high altitudes was nutrient-rich pastures for livestock watered by glaciers. Alpacas uh, also able to thrive at around uh, 13,000 feet. Ancient Andean people evolved to own large herds of alpacas and also llamas and found space for them to graze in the Andes uh, during part of the year, of course, at the higher altitudes. They weren't grazing those woolly fuckers in the dead of winter up towards the peaks. They moved their herds up and down in altitude based on the seasons and snowfall. And eventually they learned how to store food to last over the winter months as Andeans began to permanently settle high altitude areas. Because of the freezing temperatures, Andeans had to learn how to freeze-dry food to make it last longer in order to survive the winter. Uh, What is that saying? Necessity is the mother of invention. The harsh climate of the Andes led directly to a lot of innovation, invention for anyone who figured out how to survive there. The Inca would uh, figure out how to construct giant warehouses of freeze-dried foods that were used to feed government employees, engineers, armies, nobles, etc. They became ancient masters of food storage. Food stores would keep their livestock and cities alive during the harsh winters. Andes are, uh, are frosty the majority of the year, even in the summer at a lot of different altitudes. Uh, peasants would fill warehouses with food for times of poor crop yield or freezing temperatures. At one point, there were literally thousands of these warehouses, 
along some 15,000 miles of ancient road winding throughout the Andes. When the Spanish showed up, they were fucking pumped to find those warehouses. Right? It was like a bunch of primitive 7-Elevens that locals had built for them, just unable to defend them. I mean, imagine that. Imagine you show up in a new world where you and your friends are the only people with guns and maybe Kevlar body armor. The locals have no armor, no guns, but a lot of stuff that you want. And if you feel like taking their shit, you can. And that's what the Spaniards did. Uh, they are able to conquer Indians partially because of all this food, stealing it as they moved along, using uh, their designs to later build their, their own warehouses. How ironic, too, that the <laughs> these peoples built these storehouses for their own survival. And then at one point when the Spaniards came over, those same storage you know, facilities led directly to their downfall because they were able to just, uh, you know, never have to worry about uh, hunger for the, for the conquistadors. They just marched through the region, getting snack after snack at these places. Uh, the Inca state was the largest political unit in the Andes when the Spaniards showed up. Uh, their state expanded across present-day northern Ecuador, Argentina, and Chile. At the height of their power, the Inca controlled uh, most of present-day Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. By 1532, these places were part of the Inca state known as Tawantin. Oh, boy. Tawantin to you. It's a tricky word. It translates to the, the realm of four parts. I can say that part great. Uh, the Inca state didn't interfere with local villages they conquered, which meant that uh, the unique cultures well were uh, well preserved until the age of exploration. And the people of these cultures, the people of the Andes, learned how to live way the fuck up in the mountains. It's the altitude that makes the Andes mountains more uh, physiologically demanding to live in than most other areas of the world. Ancient peoples uh, routinely lived at over 10,000 feet. For comparison, only one state in the United States has any incorporated community situated at over 10,000 feet. That's Colorado. The roughly 300, uh, you know, year-round residents of Alma, Colorado, at an elevation of approximately 10,578 feet, live in the highest town in the U.S. when considering only areas with permanent residents. Its post office, located at the highest elevation of any post office in the nation. I mean, there are homes where people live year-round along the Rockies, uh, you know, above 11,000 feet, but very rare. Again, for comparison, uh, there is a town of over 16,000 people in Peru, uh, La Rinconada, that sits at roughly 16,700 feet in elevation, more than a mile higher than the highest post office in the U.S. It's the highest current human settlement in the world, so high it's above the tree line, trees literally will not grow there. And there are small groups of people that live uh, year-round at even higher elevations in the Andes, which is insane. I stayed a few days in uh, Cusco, Peru. Almost half a million people living at just over 11,000 feet, one-time capital of the Inca Empire, and I struggled with some altitude sickness. Uh, Lindsay and the kids did as well. I might have struggled a little bit less because I chewed on a lot of coca leaves because it will help with altitude sickness. Also makes you feel a little high because it's, it's cocaine. I uh, loved having a valid medical reason to chew on those leaves. Uh, they would hand that shit out when you got to, off the plane at the airport. It's fantastic. I uh, wish they did that here. But <laughs> fucking Nixon. Uh, I probably should explain altitude sickness before I move forward since all the crash survivors would have to deal with this on top of everything else. Uh, altitude sickness is caused by ascending too rapidly, right? You're, you're going up an altitude too fast. And that doesn't allow your body enough time to acclimate, to adjust to reduced oxygen levels, to changes in air pressure. Symptoms include headache, vomiting, insomnia, reduced performance and coordination. You have you know trouble, more trouble moving, more trouble thinking. It's, it's often compared to feeling like you have a hangover. Uh, and that's what it was for me. Uh, extreme altitude sickness can lead to high altitude pulmonary edema, build up a fluid in the lungs. It can be dangerous and even life-threatening. Most common cause of death from altitude sickness is uh, pulmonary edema. You can also develop high altitude cerebral edema, a severe rare form of altitude sickness that happens when there's uh, too much fluid in the brain. It too is life-threatening. 
the best treatment is, you know, go to a lower altitude. That's the best way to feel better quick. Obviously, that was not an option for the crash survivors who were fucking stranded in extreme weather. They didn't have the correct equipment to travel through. Uh, you're also supposed to drink more water at higher altitudes. You need to consume more calories. It's hard on your body. Uh, if you can't get to a lower altitude, you need time to, uh, you know, acclimate, which can take days or weeks, depending on how much higher you now find yourself than your body's used to being at. Uh, the rugby team ended up at a much higher altitude than they were used to. In addition to not having food, in addition to being wounded, they were weaker than normal. They didn't feel good, didn't think as clearly. So many fun things they had to deal with. Back to people now uh, living way up in the Andes. This is fascinating to me. Shepherds and farmers primarily make up the population of people living at or above 17,000 feet. That is way up there. Occasionally, shepherds will go as high as 19,000 feet for temporary work. Miners from the Carrasco mine in the Atacama Desert in Chile would go to a a roughly 19,500 feet for work, excuse me, before it closed in 1992. That's fucking bananas. If you go to Aspen, Colorado, they'll warn you there and take it seriously that you got to drink uh, more water than you're used to because of the altitude and don't drink as much alcohol as you should because your blood's thinner and it will hit harder. And I've experienced that firsthand. And that sits at roughly 8,000 feet. The miners, we're talking about just a second ago, were living over two and a half times that high. Uh, 1986, four miners Reportedly, we're living a year round at an elevation of 19,400 feet, making them the highest permanent residence on earth. No, thank you. I would rather be homeless on a fucking beach somewhere. I think I'd actually rather live in prison in a reasonable climate than live free at 19,400 feet. In the north of Bolivia and Colombia, there are the largest population concentrations of people in important cities in the Andes Mountains. In Peru and Bolivia, large percentage of the population still lives above 10,000 feet. Montevideo, uh, Uruguay, where the rugby team aboard flight 571 went to school, that sits at sea level. Part of the town rises to about 150 feet, which is nothing in uh, altitude. I mean, those rugby dudes were lowlanders. Uruguay, not located in the Andes. The highest point in that entire nation is only 1,686 feet, which is nothing. Those guys not used to high elevation at all, not adapted to survive in the mountains. The crash site where they would fight for their survival, fight for their lives, sits at 11,710 feet. Those crash survivors had to fight more than just bitter cold to survive. And they did have to fight bitter cold as well. Temperature would drop to roughly 22 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, not counting wind chill, and it would get really windy. All right, now let's learn a bit more about the people of the Andes before moving on. Because uh, you know what? Because we're already here. Why not? We will get to cannibalism and awe-inspiring uh, tenacity and will to survive soon enough. About half the population of Bolivia and Peru are the uh, Aymara and Quechua indigenous groups. The other portion of the population is Spanish-speaking individuals of European and indigenous heritage. For Peru, mining is the uh, most important industry above 11,500 feet in elevation. Gold! There's gold in them hills! And there is. And that's how a lot of people uh, you know, have been lured to desolate, God-forsaken bits of country like the Andes, where even trees won't fucking grow, is to find precious minerals. The majority of the Peru's population of Peru's population uh, still works in agriculture or the animal livestock industry. In the modern age, more and more Peruvians moving towards uh, other industries, though. Many still live way up in the mountains. They've adapted well to live at the crazy altitudes I've just went over. Andeans who have lived in high altitude areas like these for centuries uh, have adapted to this climate literally at a cellular level in order to get the proper oxygen it takes to thrive. They're, they're fucking lizard people, clearly. This is where the humanoid reptilians are breeding. What David Icke has been bravely warning us for years now. Uh, JK, of course, but they have adapted. Studies have shown that, uh, you know, secret to uh, the secret to long-term survival 
is the is in the heart muscles. Andean's Highland or Andean Highlanders split genetically over eight thousand years ago from neighboring lowlanders. Their hearts changed with that split. Andean people now have slightly larger hearts, higher blood pressure. Uh, they harvest oxygen in their blood more effectively, have better blood circulation. Researchers have compared Andeans to people who've lived on the Tibetan plateau for thousands of years. Tibetans have genetic variations that reduce uh, hemoglobin levels in their blood to make their bodies efficient at using oxygen. Uh, Researchers have not found this particular adaptation in Andean people, but they have found adaptations on a gene called DST related to cardiovascular health and heart muscle development. The people who live in the Ecuadorian Andes, they're mostly the uh, Quechua people, but there are small groups of Kenyaris in the southern Andes of Ecuador and the uh, Salasacas in the north. Agriculture, the main industry of the Ecuadorian Andes. In Colombia, the largest part of the population lives between 5,000, 10,500 feet in elevation. Many in uh, Colombia's coffee plantation zone from three to 3,000 to 6,500 feet. Agriculture, raising livestock are important to the people who live in the Andes. In general, crop yields are low. There's inadequate water supply and a large part of the plateau is uh, dry. Fertile valleys, few and far between. I should have said plateau region. Uh, fertile valleys are few and far between, and most of the crops in the Andes have grown by, are grown by residents to eat themselves. You got to be hardy. You got to be self-sufficient to live in most of these places. Some crops like coffee, tobacco, coca, uh, coca, yeah, the source of cocaine. Fuck yeah, bro. Are, uh, of course, exported out. Alpaca wool is another widely exported Andean product. Exporting a lot of Andean products is tricky because of how difficult transportation is in the area, how rural and still, it still is, which, you know, made it uh, why it was so hard to find these guys. It's just, you know, the very, very rural section of the Andes. Many areas of the Andes being so sparsely populated, in addition to being so unforgiving climate-wise, uh, is, you know, that's what would help hinder search parties for possible survivors. No one thought anyone would just be able to survive in these areas. You know, if they did get lucky enough to live through the crash, which uh, was also deemed highly unlikely. Much of the region, so rugged and rural, pack trails are still the primary mode of transportation in a lot of areas. People still using donkeys, horses, mules, oxen, llamas to transport themselves or products. Alpacas, a little bit. Uh, There are numerous railways in the Andes, but mostly used to connect mines to cities. Peru has two large internal railways. Uh, Ecuador, Colombia each have one. Since World War II, all countries along the, uh, oh boy, Cordilleras. Cordilleras. Oh, fucking, I don't know. (laughs) It means ranges. Let's just go with the ranges along the uh, ranges of the Andes have expanded their road networks to the mountains, but not all parts are paved. Air transport development has been uh, great for the region, unless your plane crashes and you have to fucking eat people, of course. Uh, It's made travel transport of products much easier. Beyond the freezing temperatures, low oxygen, the Andes are also prone to natural disasters, which have, uh, you know, been exacerbated by climate change, which is not real. (laughs) Only snowflakes and almost all scientists believe that. Uh, no, but earthquakes, landslides, volcanoes, avalanches, just a few of the problems one might face in the mountains. The Chilean portion of the Andes, also part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, an active group of volcanoes, so many fun things to deal with. Many of these high-altitude volcanoes, uh, devoid of almost anything but rocks and ice and snow, glaciers and wind have just stripped the soil. The higher you go, the thinner and rockier the soil gets, and you can go so high. The Andes have the highest peaks in the Western Hemisphere. The highest is Mount Aconcagua. Located in Argentina. I think I nailed that one. Uh, 22,831 feet. Over four miles. Well over four miles above sea level. Well, I should say well over. A little over. Uh, the higher you go, not surprisingly, the worse the weather gets. Uh, from 11,500 to 14,800 feet. The day and night temperature shift is drastic. Uh, again, the crash site was uh, 11,710 feet. Above 15,700 feet, the climate is officially polar. 
with extremely low temperatures and strong winds. If the plane had crashed a bit higher than it did, if it didn't slide down the hill the way that it did uh, during the crash, uh, got stuck in the polar zone, all the passengers of 571 would have almost certainly died in just a few days, freezing to death. So I guess the survivors kind of got lucky. Okay, enough setup. Sorry for the additional knowledge. That was unnecessary. But the stage has been set enough now. Uh, we've learned that not only did Flight 71 uh, crash, not only would search efforts fail to find it, it also crashed in one of the worst areas on Earth a plane could crash in, outside of maybe the Arctic Circle or Antarctica or the middle of the ocean. The survivors were trapped up against freezing cold, low oxygen, blinding sun. Don't forget the blinding sun. No food. Trapped in a barren, ice-covered wasteland. And most of the team had grown up on the coast of Uruguay. All of them lived in the coast of Uruguay before the crash. Not adapted for life with low oxygen levels at high altitude. Not adapted for life with low temperatures either. They'd never truly experienced this kind of cold they would face before. But some of those fuckers lived despite all of this. Quite a few of them, actually. They kept up alive. They did whatever it took. They really, really wanted to continue to live. Nimrod's will was strong in them. Now let's dive into a step-by-step telling of their story in today's Time Suck Timeline right after today's mid-show sponsor break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste 
healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around. Now let's get to that crash and survival timeline I was just talking about. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On October 13th, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crashed into the Andes, killing several passengers upon impact. Why were they flying that day? The old Christians Club rugby team was going to play the old Grangonian Rugby Club in Santiago, Chile. Team Captain Marcelo Perez had chartered the Uruguayan Air Force plane to fly them over. It was the cheapest option to get there. So while the bad news would be that a lot of them would die and those who would live would have to go through hell to survive and eat a lot of people, the good news is they did save a bit of money. Trying to find the bright side. Uh, Colonel uh, uh, Julio uh, Cesar Ferradas was the pilot. He had 5,117 total flight hours. A pretty experienced guy. Co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector uh, Laguerrara. His name is a tricky one for me. A new pilot with not very much experience. After the team charted the flight, there were still uh, 10 extra seats, so they invited some family members to go along with them. Then when one of the family members canceled last minute, oh man, how glad were they to do that? They sold that seat to a woman named Graziella Mariana so she could attend her daughter's wedding. So sad. In total, there were 40 passengers, five crew members. Of the 45, uh, only five were women. And none of those women would survive the ordeal. Hail Nimrod! Woo! Uh, JK. No, that was completely necessary. Come on. Uh, Flight 571 departed from Carrasco International Airport, Uruguay's primary international airport, located in the Carrasco neighborhood of Montevideo on October 12th, 1972. But then it ended up getting grounded due to bad weather in Mendoza, Argentina for the night roughly 750 miles to the west. On the morning of the 13th, weather conditions had not improved, but it was expected that they would be much better by early afternoon. The pilots were still worried. Of course, they were worried. These guys were no Maverick, Goose, Iceman, or Rooster. Yes, I finally saw Maverick, and yes, it was glorious. Uh, The pilots had already uh, been delayed for quite a while because, you know, they were seriously concerned about the dangerous weather. They continued to hear reports of severe turbulence along the designated flight path. Then they spoke to the pilot of a cargo plane that had just made the journey that they were going to go on, reluctantly determined, uh, they reluctantly determined that their plane could handle it, that they could fly safe the afternoon, even though in the Andes, the afternoon is the most dangerous time to fly. Warm air rising from the foothills reaches the cold air of the mountains and creates strong turbulence and fog. I say reluctantly because they uh, still might not have taken to the air if it wasn't for both some legal pressure and some social pressure. The pilots felt pressure to either fly on to the destination or take everyone back to Uruguay because Argentinian laws at the time forbid foreign military aircraft to stay on Arge- uh, you know, Argentina soil for more than 24 hours. You know, and technically the plane was considered a military aircraft. I mean, it was Air Force, even though it wasn't being used for a military mission. Also, they were catching a lot of shit from the rugby team. Uh, excuse me, Pastor Nando Parado stated that when it was all over, he believed that the team's poor behavior definitely influenced the decision to fly. They aggressively complained to the pilots, put a lot of pressure on them to take them to their game. I bet they did. I mean, they're fucking rugby players. I don't know if you've known any rugby players. They're a crazy bunch. I dated a rugby girl in college for a semester at Gonzaga, uh, went to a few rugby parties, was friends with some guys on Gonzaga's rugby team. And my brother-in-law was on the rugby team at uh, Boise State University and then played uh, club rugby in Boise for years and years after that. And the rugby players I have been around in both 
Boise and Spokane, some of the most fucking insane, wildest people I've ever partied with. It's like very much a, a, a macho, a tough guy culture, a lot of shit talking, a lot of ball busting, so much drinking, like so much. And for some reason, a lot of nudity, a lot of dicks being whipped out, a lot of streaking, just, just a, you know, a bunch of general, you know, chaos, just a bunch of let's raise some hell activity. And I bet those Uruguayan rugby players tried to make those pilots feel like huge fucking crybabies for not wanting to fly. Probably said all kinds of shit to them that they later regretted. The pilots, Ferrada's uh, La Guarara, caved into all this pressure, decided to fly when they weren't, you know, totally positive it was a great idea. Uh, the direct route to Santiago required the plane to fly at about 26,000 feet, which was tricky because that plane not built to fly higher than 28,000 feet. So that doesn't give them much, uh, you know, room to uh, maneuver if shit goes wrong. Very little room for error, especially with a, a big load of, you know, passengers and baggage. And this flight was full, full of a lot of bigger athletic dudes. You know, it'd be tricky to calculate fuel needs and navigate the mountains for those guys. So Ferradas and La Guarara, uh, they decided to take a 90-minute alternate route, which was supposed to be much safer, only requiring them to fly at an altitude of 22,500 feet. The pilots planned a southern course over Planchon Pass that sits on the border of Chile and Argentina. And they took off at 2.18 p.m. The plane, a twin-engine Fairchild FH-227D, flown by the inexperienced co-pilot La Guarara on this uh, flight. The plane was only four years old, had no known mechanical problems. Uh, pilot Ferrara, uh, uh, Ferradas, sorry, there we go, uh, was training La Guarara at the time and let him fly to gain more experience. He sure shit would uh, soon come to regret that decision, at least for the short time between knowing he was going to die and dying. As they flew, clouds covered the mountains. La Guarara soon mistakenly thought that they were approaching uh, Curico, uh, Chile, 122 miles south of Santiago, uh, but the instrument reading said otherwise. Due to stormy weather around them, dense cloud cover, the pilots had no visual for where they were, started, you know, had to rely on radio navigation. The aircraft's navigation displayed a digital reading of the distance to the next radio beacon in Curico uh, when they reached Planchon Pass and said the aircraft still had to travel 37 to 43 miles to reach the city. At 3.18 p.m., shortly after approaching the pass, La Guarara contacted Santiago, notified air traffic control. He expected to reach Curico in less than four minutes, 3.22 p.m., but the flight time normally 11 minutes from uh, where they actually were. The pilots, they didn't know where they were. There was a big, uh, you know, error. Only three minutes later, La Guarara told air traffic controllers in Santiago that they were passing now Curico and turning north, and he requested permission to descend since he thought he had made it past, uh, you know, a rough stretch of mountains. The controller, based on the information given to them, authorized him to descend to 11,500 feet. This would be a critical fucking error. As Lagarara descended, turbulence made the plane bounce. Suddenly, air control no longer able to make contact with them. The plane crossed, Planchon Pass. The pilots announced on the speaker, fasten your seatbelts. We are going to enter some turbulence. Were they ever? Uh, further turbulence then made the plane drop several hundred additional feet, which knocked them beneath the cloud cover. And the passengers now saw uh, that they were real real fucking close to the mountains. And now these macho rugby players on board, I love this detail so much. Uh, they didn't want to uh, appear afraid and maybe some of them weren't afraid. They now start throwing around the rugby balls <laughs> and singing some uh, song I'd never heard of, this uh, conga, 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 the plane is dancing conga. Guessing that song makes more sense if you're a rugby player in Uruguay in the early 70s. Maybe they just made it up, I don't know. Suddenly one of them then looks out their window and asks, is the plane supposed to be flying so close to the mountains? It was not. Right? La Guarara had made a deadly mistake. He, he had turned north and began descending way too fucking early uh, when the plane was still flying high in the Andes. They hadn't been where they thought they were when air traffic control authorized their descent. La Guarara now applied maximum power in an attempt to quickly gain altitude. I'm sure a lot of profanity was being thrown around the cockpit. 
The plane went nearly vertical. They tried the steepest climb possible, shook violently. You know, they're desperately trying to climb. Uh, it was just a little too late to avoid disaster. A moment later, the plane, it's so sad, they almost made it. It clips the, the mountain ridge as they're trying to get over a 14,500-foot peak. Lagara managed to get the nose over the ridge of the mountain, but at 3.34 p.m., the tail clips the ridge. Holy shit. Hopefully you're not listening to this episode on a flight over some mountains right now. The impact tilts the plane forward, sending it uh, into another collision with the side of the mountain. Now, a moment later, where the right wing is torn off, the impact now sends a plane tilting backwards and the tail cone gets ripped off the plane, which sends a few passengers flying out. Many of the remaining players, mostly rugby players, still tried to keep the mood light. They're insane. They kept tossing that damn rugby ball around. They were singing. Uh, They still didn't want to appear scared. And I guess maybe some weren't. I mean, they're drunk. They're rugby players. They don't give a fuck. They're just singing, conga, conga, conga. The plane is dancing, conga. Some guys just flew out and the wing broke off, but we're still going to crush old Grand Guardian. Woo! Let's fucking go! JK. But God, I love picturing them being that impervious to fear. Just that insane. The ultimate fearless rugby players. Uh, after the tail, tail cone is ripped off the plane, few players fly out. The plane tilts back forward again for a few seconds. Now the left wing uh, collides with the mountain. One of the propellers slices through the fuselage as the left wing is now also torn off. Two more passengers fall out of a gaping hole in the plane. The remaining rugby team members continue to sing. Conga, conga, conga. The plane is dancing. Conga. Some more guys just flew out and the other wing broke off. But we still have enough people to fuck up old man going in. Woo, let's fucking go. Uh, no. <laughs> God, that'd be so great, though. <laughs> They're probably all just screaming. Anyone who is still alive and conscious at this point is just screaming in terror. Uh, finally, the plane starts rapidly sliding down the mountain like a giant bobsled. This is like out of a movie. For crashing into a snowbank. Uh, when it crashed, it kills Ferratas, the most uh, experienced of the two pilots, upon impact. Instrument panel shoved into his chest. Before crashing, that plane slid down 3,000 feet. Reached an estimated speed of 225 miles an hour possibly uh, allowing a chance of survival also due to the uh, temperature drop of a, of a lower altitude when they stopped. While it slid, I do like to imagine one of the rugby players, right? He's still not, <laughs> he still doesn't want to seem afraid. I imagine him just like unbuckling himself out of his seat and just, you know, fucking taking his clothes off really quick and just running streaking down the aisle just to show that he's that tough. Let's fucking go! Woo! Uh, the fuselage slams to a stop in a valley between Chile and Argentina. Didn't have a name at the time. Would be re- no, would be named, not renamed, excuse me, uh, the Valley of Tears because of what these guys would go through. Nando Parado described the valley in his book. The ridges formed a ragged semicircle that ringed the crash site like the walls of a monstrous amphitheater with the wreckage of the Fairchild lying at center stage. Five people had already died from falling off the plane in the initial impacts. Lieutenant Ramon Sal, uh, Saul Martinez, uh, the flight's navigator, flight attendant uh, Joaquin Ramirez, uh, Gaston Costamale, a law student, uh, Alejo Ahuni, a veterinarian student, or veterinary student, and uh, Guido Magri, a Papa John's pizza product developer. No, he didn't do that. He was, uh, he was uh, an agronomy student. I just heard Guido. I heard an Italian name, at least to me, and better ingredients, better pizza flooded into my mind again. Uh, the two that fell off a few seconds later when the left wing was torn off were Daniel Shaw, cattle rancher, and Carlos Valletta, a student who hadn't declared yet what their specialty was. Five people then died upon impact with a snowbank. Team physician, Dr. Francisco Nicola, his wife, Esther Nicola, uh, Eugenia Parado, Fernando Parado's mother, uh, Fernando Vasquez, occupation not listed in sources, and pilot Ferratas. Mentioned him uh, earlier. Final impact of the crash ripped all the seats from their anchors, pushed them to the front of the plane, causing severe injuries for the passengers who were still alive. Co-pilot Lagorara, still alive, but critically wounded and now trapped in the cockpit. 
Passenger Roberta Canessa uh, held onto his seat so hard, he ripped out chunks of fabric with his bare hands before being thrown forward and hitting his head. He then remembers thinking he was dead, reciting a Hail Mary. Someone cried out, please, God, help me, help me. Another man screaming, I'm blind. Roberto saw that his friend Nando Parado had a severe injury uh, to his head. Part of his brain is exposed. Next, someone shouts, the pilot is alive. The pilot is alive. They find Ferrata's dead, but LaGuara alive, trapped in the cockpit, not in good shape. He asked them to get a, a pistol and shoot him, but they refuse. They try to use the radio. The batteries are uh, in the tail, which had broken off, and they didn't know where the fuck it was. 33 people are st- somehow still alive, but many badly injured. What a, what a nightmare. I, I just can't imagine to begin how you would feel in that situation. Right, Just a few minutes earlier, they've been thinking about their upcoming rugby match, flying through the crowd like, like a minute or two early, singing a song. Now the plane laying in ruins around them. A dozen are dead. Many of those who uh, still have badly injured. So much shock and adrenaline. So much panic. Roberto Canessa, Gustavo Zabrino, both first-year med students did not panic. They went into crisis mode, start moving around treating the injured. Pastor Nando Parado, right, with his severe skull fracture, he falls into a coma. And then he somehow does not die. Both of Arturo uh, Naguera's legs were broken. Enrico Platero had a piece of metal stuck uh, into his abdomen. This is nuts. Gustavo removed the metal, accidentally taking out part of Enrique's intestine as he did so. And then somehow that tough fucker not only survived, he just got quickly bandaged up and immediately started helping other survivors. So it must not have been a super important piece of intestine. Uh, Roberto Gustavo, team captain Marcelo Perez, continue assessing survivors, trying to figure out who can still play in the big fucking game. I mean, come on. There's plenty of time to go whoop old Grangonian's ass. Let's fucking go. They start singing songs, tossing around that little piece of Enrique's testin, intestines since they lost their rugby balls. Conga, conga, conga. The plane was dancing conga. A lot of guys are dead. Nando's brain is barely in his head. But we're still the best fucking rugby team in South America. Woo! Uh, no, that's crazy talk. Uh, as soon as Lagarara and Ferratas failed to make contact with their destination, a rescue team is sent out, but they soon realize the location they thought the plane was in when they last made contact was incorrect. Right? So that mistake of uh, navigation screws them over twice. The Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service, SARS, notified within the hour that the flight was missing. Four planes will go out and search for it until dark. At 6 p.m., news of the missing flight reaches uh, Uruguayan media. Officers of SARS listened to the radio transmission, concluded the aircraft had landed, had crashed in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andes, just of all the Andes. And they strongly assumed there would be no survivors between impact and in harsh conditions. But they call on the Andes Rescue Group of Chile, CSA, for additional rescue efforts. As evening approaches, Team Captain Marcelo Perez quickly takes on a leadership role, using all of my willpower uh, to not act like they're still trying to get ready for the rugby match right now. For real, uh, now Marcelo kept up. Uh, people call made plans, delegating tasks so everyone could survive the first few days. Marcelo insisted that he sleep in the coldest section of the plane, asked anyone who wasn't injured to do the same. He forced people to keep busy when they wanted to lay down in misery. He was also in charge of rationing the food. Nando Parado later wrote about their meager rations, and these are seriously meager. Each meal was nothing more than a small square of chocolate or a dab of jam washed down with a sip of wine from the cap of an aerosol can. Marcelo tried to keep people's spirits up by assuring them that God wouldn't put them through that suffering only to turn his back on them. Well, they had a lot of suffering in front of them. Uh, later that night, co-pilot LaGuardia, rugby players Francisco Abal, Felipe Curian, and uh, Julio Martinez Lamas, and wedding guest Graziella Mariani all die from their various injuries. Now they're down to 28 survivors from the original 45. They, went, they were down to 29 as they uh, went to sleep. One would die uh, during the night. 
late into the night. Uh, the remaining passengers removed the seats inside the fuselage to make uh, a shelter. Fuselage, just the, the body of a plane where all the seats are. Almost 30 people slept in an eight by 10 foot space surrounded by dead bodies. They used luggage and seats to close up the hole from where the tail had ripped off. Survivor Eduardo Strauch uh, would describe the first night saying, we have a very small space. We were 29 people at the first. We have no warm clothes, no water. We have to melt snow. It was very difficult because the weather was very cold and the snow was all over the kerosene of the engines of the plane. We are surrounded with our friends who died. And that first night was really impossible to describe. Nando also described what the other passengers experienced. Because night had fallen so quickly, there hadn't been time to remove all the bodies. And the survivors were forced to hunker down among the dead, shoving and prodding the corpses of friends for a few more inches of space. It was a scene from a nightmare, but the fear and physical suffering the survivors were enduring overshadowed their horror. And he was still in a coma when this happens. Uh, They told him this after he wakes up. And yeah, man, what an absolute nightmare. Uh, Before Lagarar died, uh, he told the group that the Chileans knew that they had passed Curico and were in the foothills of the Andes. The Altimer or Altimeter read 7,000 feet, but you know, that's not true. That was an error caused by the plane crash. They were much higher up, as I said earlier, almost 12,000 feet, 11,710 feet. October 14th, 1972, first full day on the mountain. Morale is low. The guys were really, really worried that they would not be able to make it in time to Santiago for that fucking rugby match. No, sorry, I can't help myself. Uh, Morale was low because they were in a frozen hell. The first task of day two was moving the bodies from the fuselage into the snow. Marcelo Perez rounded up men to gather food and useful items. He and his group arranged luggage into a giant cross to be seen from above. The survivors tried to paint SOS on the plane with red lipstick, but didn't have enough. Later that day, 11 aircraft from Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, they searched for the lost plane. And the survivors did see a helicopter fly by, but couldn't get their attention. My God, that'd be devastating. The white fuselage of their plane, too small to be seen from so far away, camouflaged by the snow. Uh, They hoped the helicopters would return again the next day. There was already almost no food for them to eat. I mean, the flight was only supposed to be roughly two hours. No one packed anything besides a few uh, little airplane snacks. They just had a little bit of wine, candy bars, one tin of mussels, toothpaste, uh, a few chocolate peanuts, and some jam. They finished those very meager rations in about a week, never once eating anywhere near a satisfying amount. And very soon they were facing starvation. Early on, team member Eduardo Strauch's cousin, Adolfo, told the group that they were going to have to eat the bodies. And the overall response to this was, Relief. Many of the others were glad he said what they'd been thinking, but were too afraid to say. Before figuring out if they'd be capable or not of eating people, they first had a more pressing problem to deal with, hydration. Although they were surrounded by snow, they couldn't eat enough of it to actually stay hydrated. It was so frozen, so icy, it would also cut their mouths, irritate their gums, make their tongues, throats swell. There were a a few days of extreme worry when many of them thought that they were going to, you know, die of of thirst very soon. But then passenger uh, Fido Strouch came up with a creative solution. He melted snow on a sheet of metal, collected the drippings into a wine bottle. Fucking genius. And then uh, they would rotate this across a couple other little storage devices they were able to find and come up with a way to stay hydrated. Water now no longer a problem. And so they wouldn't have to worry about suffering from snow blindness when they went out in the snow. Uh, Fido also made sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin. This same crafty son of a bitch also turned seat covers into blankets, cushioned into snowshoes to make it easier to go outside to use the bathroom and whatnot. Can't be shitting what's left of the plane. If only serial killer and feces and urine lover Albert Fish would have been on this plane, right? And crashed with them and then somehow lived. He could have been like a human toilet for them. You bet your bottom dollar I'm ready for some more peanut butter and hot apple cider. Bear cats and beer bulls. That's how you do it in Hollywood. That's how you do it in the Andes. Also, before moving forward, uh, since I mentioned it a few times, I should explain what snow blindness is. 
Snow blindness is eye pain and discomfort caused by overexposure to the sun's ultraviolet rays. It's like, it's like getting a sunburn on your eyeballs. Usually you don't have to worry about that. You just don't, uh, you just don't stare at the sun. You, you, you nink and poop. But in a sunny, icy, snow-covered area, the UV rays can bounce off the snow up into your eyes. Also in high-altitude areas where the atmosphere is thinner, there are more UV rays making it to the Earth's surface and hence making it to your eyeballs. Uh, now back to these rugby players getting crafty in their efforts to survive. Medical student Roberto Canessa fashioned hammocks for the injured people to sleep on. He became this Motley Crue's kind of main doctor, did his best to take care of infections, stabilize fractures, remove dead bodies. He used uh, women's perfume as disinfectant, uh, just basic razor blades as scalpels, ugh, and rugby jerseys as bandages. God, that makes me cringe just to think about what kind of surgeries he ended up having to carry out. I, was, I, I like to think about uh, uh, you know, getting, a, getting operated on in an abandoned plane by a first-year medical student with a razor blade. All of the survivors agreed to join together to do what was necessary. Uh, they shared chores, switched sleeping positions so everyone could have a chance in the warmest spot, uh, tried their best to keep spirits up. Gustavo Nikolic and uh, Fido Strauch rebuilt the cross signal out of luggage that uh, rescue a- aircraft might see each and every morning. Alvaro Mangino, Arturo Nuguera managed water production. Roberto was the physician, as I said. Daniel Fernandez massaged people's feet so they wouldn't freeze. Okay, interesting role. Maybe also had a foot fetish, who knows? Uh, Coche uh, Inciarte told stories to keep everyone's spirits up. Roy Harley organized cleaning the fuselage. Gustavo Zerbino organized a suitcase full of documents, medallions, crucifixes, watches of the dead, hoping to, uh, you know, return them to their families later. Seems like uh, Gustavo got a pretty easy job there. Everyone else is doing these things that require, you know, uh, stuff to do every day. And he just like, uh, you know, puts people's shit into a suitcase one time. Uh, important note, uh, Roberto contributes a lot of information to this story because he's one of the first uh, people willing to do interviews and write about this in depth uh, from the start. And he really painted himself as the hero. However, according to Nando and some of the other survivors, yeah, Roberto was heroic, but like only like the rest of them were. And apparently he could be a bit of an asshole. He was supposedly arrogant, overbearing, cruel at times, often ignored group decisions, and randomly sometimes stepped on injured people <laughs> inside the plane when they got in his way. That last part seems pretty messed up. But you know what? Also, if you're normally, uh, you know, maybe like a little cranky, you know, that, that's your temperament. I can see how this situation would exacerbate that as it wears on day after day. Might make you one of the crankiest motherfuckers in the history of the earth. Maybe normally he wouldn't be mashing on people who are crippled. Overall, it seems like Roberto does a, a lot of good in this story. So I'm going to say he's a pretty good dude. But again, you know, he uh, he wrote a lot of the story. Uh, as more time passed, tension started to rise between survivors and uh who were actively working and then the so-called lost boys, those who had fallen into deep depression and refused to work or get up. The people working understandably grew uh, pretty frustrated and resentful of them and had arguments often. So come on, Ramon, no way. You didn't help make any water. You didn't bury shit. Didn't organize anything in a suitcase even. So you don't get a slice of Felipe. You definitely don't get the chest meat. Maybe they didn't say anything that dark in their arguments, but you know, maybe they did. I don't know. Uh, October 15th, 1972, passenger Nando Parado wakes up from his coma after recovering from a cerebral edema. He was only out for two days, but still, fucking crazy. He was able to uh, heal it all in this situation. He was surrounded by faces telling him, Nando, can you hear me? Nando, we crashed. After the crash, they thought he was uh, dying and put his body with the others at the end of the fuselage. Uh, One of the healthiest people, or only the healthiest people, were put in the warmest spot. So his head was uh, in the coldest part of the plane, which actually kept him alive, kept his brain from swelling. Diego Storm, another med student, pulled him out during the first night, which prevented him from completely freezing to death. And they kind of would rotate him. A little bit warm and then mostly cold. Uh, one thing that was beneficial to all the injured passengers was the snow and ice. They kept, uh, it kept bacteria from growing, spreading deadly infections, and offered numbing pain relief. 
I wouldn't have thought that, but it makes perfect sense. Nando asked about his family. The survivors told him his mother, Eugenia, had died, and his little sister, Susanna, was uh, badly injured. So Nando then took on the role of attempting to nurse Susie back to health. The survivors had found a damaged transistor radio. Passenger Roy Harley, an engineering student, was able to make an antenna using an electrical cable from the plane, and they were actually able to hear the news of the crash and how everyone thought they were dead. So that's fun. They tried to find a way to communicate to the radio, but there wasn't enough of a signal. And how just unimaginably frustrating to be able to hear the outside world, but have no means of reaching anyone in the outside world. On October 16th, 1972, four survivors decided to take an exploratory hike to see the land, get used to the environment. Fido Strauch, uh, Numa Tocati, Carlitos Paez, and Roberto Canessa set out. They were able to learn just enough to feel worse about the predicament. They learned that they are way the fuck up in the mountains and far away from any possibility of help, and they feel hopeless. Nando later wrote his thoughts in his book, uh, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days in the Mountain, and My Long Trek, published in 2006. The four who had climbed were the strongest and healthiest among us, and the mountain had defeated them with ease. But I did not accept this defeat, that we could not escape this place, that we were already dead. Instead, I told myself that they were soft, they were afraid, they had quit too easily. The mountain did not seem so treacherous to me. Dude gave himself hope, a purpose, a challenge to push himself. I'm sure it helped keep him alive. Nando is my favorite character in the story, by the way. Uh, October 21st, 1972, after 142 hours of flying, the rescue teams call off the search. They announce plans to search for bodies in December when some of the snow will have melted. Remember December, uh, part of the summer in the Andes, beginning of summer. According to survivor Eduardo Strouch, Strouch, uh, hearing the news was absolutely devastating. So we felt abandoned and we felt so angry with everybody, even with our families, with the world, with God, with nature, with everything. We were absolutely angry, but very fast, very quick, we realized that the only way to get out would be by doing it ourselves. Roberto recalled a fellow survivor then telling, uh, telling him, I have, I have good news. We no longer have to wait for someone to rescue us. We'll get out ourselves. Uh, Roberto did not think anything about this news was good. I mean, I'm all for looking for the silver lining, but that's a, that's a stretch. Great news, everybody. No one's going to help us. But I see what he's saying, right? No point wasting time thinking they're going to be helped. Uh, Roberto remembers feeling like they were trapped in a prison. But then he thought, no, a prison is like a five-star hotel. You have water, you have food, you have a bed. We were living in a graveyard surrounded by dead friends. This is the worst place you can imagine in life or in death. Also on the 21st, eight days into this shit, Nando's little sister, Susie, dies from her injuries. October 22nd, day nine, the survivors commit their first act of cannibalism. They're beginning to starve to death. All of their food, you know, they started with very little, had run out that first week. After the food uh, ran out, pastors attempted to eat uh, the leather, uh, some cotton from the seats, but the chemicals, you know, in them made them sick. Everyone was growing angry, frustrated, days without food, uh, you know, after days without food passed, uh, Nando Parado would occasionally start standing up and shout, there's nothing in this fucking place to eat. He later wrote, but of course there was food on the mountain. There was meat, plenty of it in an easy reach. It was as near as the bodies of the dead lying outside. It puzzles me that despite my compulsive drive to find anything edible, I ignored for so long the obvious presence of the only edible objects within a hundred miles. There are some lines, I suppose, that the mind is very slow to cross. And Roberto later wrote, our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we'd become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates preserved outside in the snow and ice contained vital, 
life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. Over the course of the first week, many of them had secretly tried to mentally prepare themselves to eat human meat. Some of their uh, belts began to shrink by a full notch each day because of how rapidly they were now losing weight. All of the survivors in the end would lose anywhere from 50 to 70 pounds over the 72 days between the wreck and the rescue. And no one had a lot of extra weight to begin with. They were all fairly slim and in shape. Most of them, you know, young athletes. So most of that weight they lost was muscle mass. When the decision to eat the bodies was made, Roberto, Fido, Gustavo, Daniel Maspons uh, stood over the bodies of LaGuara and Ferradas. Fucking pilots, of course. They said they chose them because they didn't know them that well. Thought it'd be easiest to eat them first. Uh, I'm sure that factored a lot into it, but I bet also a little pissed at them for crashing. I mean, their most important job was to not crash and they fucked it up pretty badly. And now everyone's real hangry and they want someone to blame. I would have been surprised if they picked anyone other than the pilots to eat first. The survivors stood over the pilots' bodies with razor blades and shards of glass. Yee! Roberto, just 19 years old, was the first one to make a cut into human flesh. He later told uh, the Independent, we laid the thin strips of frozen flesh aside on a piece of sheet metal. Each of us finally consumed our piece when we could bear to. Each of us came to our own decision in our own time. And once we had done so, it was irreversible. It was our final goodbye to innocence. Roberto was also the first one to take a bite of human flesh. He later said that what gave him the strength to do so was thoughts of his mother. How fucking tasty. She would be. He had always wanted to eat mama, especially her back and her sweet, sweet bottom and her breasts. No, that's not quite what he meant. No, he said his mom once told him that if, uh, you know, her children died before her, she would die too. Well, I'm sure more than once told him that. Uh, So he justified cannibalism in order to have a better chance to stay alive so he couldn't, uh, so he wouldn't break mama's heart. So, you know, good son. Uh, Once he ate the meat, nothing happened. He felt better. He later compared it to a first sexual experience. You had these expectations, all this buildup, and then the reality is not what you thought it would be. He said the taste was like uh, any other raw meat. Nando agreed to eat the flesh as well, but he insisted on protecting his mother and sister's bodies. No one eats mama. No, no one. And that uh, feels fair. He wrote, eating the flesh did not satisfy my hunger, but it calmed my mind. I knew that my body would use the protein to strengthen itself and slow the process of starvation. Roberto later gave National Geographic more of his thoughts on the situation, saying cannibalism is when you kill someone. So technically, this is what is known as anthropophagy. Uh, I've had these discussions for 40 years. It might be anthropophagy. There we go, anthropophagy. I've had these discussions for 40 years. I don't care. We had to eat these dead bodies and that was it. The flesh had protein and fat, which we needed like cow meat. I was also used to medical procedures, so it was easier for me to make the first cut. The decision to accept it intellectually is only one step though. The next step is to actually do it. And that was very tough. Your mouth doesn't want to open because you feel so miserable and sad about what you have to do. My main issue was that I was invading the privacy of my friends, raping their dignity by invading their bodies. But then I thought, if I were killed, I would feel proud that my body could be used for others to survive. I feel that I shared a piece of my friends, not only materially, but spiritually, because their will to live was transmitted to us through their flesh. We made a pact that if we died, we would be happy to put our bodies to the service of the rest of the team. Holy fuck. Everything he said uh, does make sense to me, but damn, that is a strange, crazy place to go to in your head. I wonder if he still feels that like spiritual nourishment, like the connection to people he eats. Like I wonder since he crossed that line, like every once in a while, if he, if he wants to eat like a little bit of a loved one just to get a little bit of their power. I don't know. I also wonder uh, what, what body parts exactly would they end up eating? 
Because there are multiple reports that they ate like basically everything off some of the bodies, like all the muscles, uh, many of the organs, including the heart and brains. But did they eat any wieners? I can't be the only person to think this. Did they eat any boobs? I mean, right? They needed fat to help survive. Get a fatty boob. What about balls? What about buttholes? How hungry would you have to be to eat your friend's raw butthole? Do not judge me for these thoughts. I'm just a very curious person. My curiosity has a few boundaries. Also, I don't remember uh, ever coming across the term uh, anthropophagy before. It's, it's simply defined as the eating of human flesh by human beings. Some consider this term synonymous with cannibalism. Others consider it, uh, you know, different in the way Roberto just described. Where you're not killing someone, you're just eating someone who happens to be dead. Uh, but a lot of people say like that uh, tomato, tomato. Eduardo Strouch made himself eat by thinking of it only as the only way to survive. Physically, at first, he found it very difficult to eat the meat. But in time, he said he got used to it and eventually became disconnected, absolutely, with the origin of the food. Makes sense. According to him, the meat had no taste. He just tried to swallow it whole. Probably wasn't talking about eating butthole there. I feel like that would have some taste. Uh, many of the survivors, if not all, found it humiliating to have to degrade themselves to this level of eating their friends to survive. Can't imagine. Uh, all the pastors were Catholic and they feared going to hell for doing this. They were worried that eating human flesh could somehow damn their souls. They ended up justifying their actions by referencing the Last Supper. Javier uh, Methol, Liliana Methol, his wife and the, and the last female survivor, were the final passengers to eat human flesh. They were strict Catholics, had to really align their spiritual beliefs with, uh, you know, being able to do this, kind of make the two uh, feel okay with each other. Uh, Javier said he prayed and prayed and prayed, uh, read a Bible they had, and then finally quoted John six fifty four: he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. And I will resurrect him on the last day. Take and eat. This is my body. So now he's like, okay, all right. If it's, it says in the Bible, I can do it. Uh, Roberto later wrote in his book, there was the God of the outside world and one of the 10 commandments who ordered that we not steal or lie. But my God of the mountain was different. The God of the mountain witnessed the groaning of my insides. So while I promised to honor him, he saw me and knew I had lost the ability to lie or to conceal my overwhelming starvation. So I prayed to my mountain God about whether I could eat my friends. And the mountain god was like, fuck yeah, bro. Fucking eat it. Mm, go for the, some of that backstrap. Get those get those ribs. Get those strip steaks. Come on. Get, get some of that bicep steak. Get some of that forearm gristle. Eat those nuts. Or something like that. I think the mountain god uh, might have been Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Eduardo and his two cousins took over the butchery. They were put in charge of the terrible task of prepping the meat so other survivors didn't have to see where it was coming from. They would cut it into thin strips, dry it in the sun, and uh, yikes. And all this meat talk, uh, human meat talk, obviously pretty disturbing. And uh, it also leads us directly in to our next sponsor. Hey, pizza lovers. Is all this talk of so much meat making your mouth water? Papa John's is now introducing two new pizzas for you to love. The hell yeah, there's a hair in your food pizza. And the focus on the sauce and don't ask too many questions pizza. The hell yeah, there's a hair on your food pizza has human hair on every slice. Of course it does. We left the skin on when we prepped that people pepperoni and Canadian bacon that is literally fatty meat cut from a heavy dude from Canada. Try it with some stuffed crust, only $15 for an extra large. And add an extra large, don't ask too many questions pizza for only $5 because, well, you just don't want to know. Let's just say that once we've used up all the good people meat for our hell yeah, there's a hair on your food pizza, we use whatever the fuck is left for the don't ask too many questions pizza. Add an order of cheesy bread and a two-liter bottle of A&W root beer for just another $1.99. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. Eat your friends. Focus on the sauce. Papa John's. 
Yeah, that's hair. Drink it down some root beer. Papa John's. Eat your fucking friends! Don't be a fucking crybaby! Papa John's. I know that was really fucked up. I, I personally cannot believe that Papa John's would insist from corporate headquarters that I read that ad that their sales team definitely wrote word for word. I found it insensitive. Uh, if you remember that Papa John's legal team to understand comedy, the previously read commercial was a parody, not real, better ingredients, better pizza, go fuck yourself. Uh, October 23rd, 1972, day 11. Had to break it up there. Three men head out on a second trek. Gustavo Zerbino, uh, Numa Turcati, and Daniel Maspons set out. They discover more of the remains of the plane crash and five bodies of other passengers. They also miscalculate the time it would take them to hike and end up having to sleep outside with no protection and nearly freeze to death. To make matters worse, Gustavo, has uh, he goes snowblind. His eyes are swollen and red. Said he felt like there were sand and needles in his eyes. Also got so cold and shivered so hard. I don't even know if any of this is possible. He knocked some of his teeth loose from chattering his teeth. When they returned, Roberto had to chew up his meat before feeding to him like a fucking baby bird. Gustavo Zubino told Nando, uh, the cold up on those slopes is indescribable. It rips the life from you. It's as painful as fire. I never thought we would live until morning. Nando was not discouraged. Well, maybe, maybe he's a little bit discouraged, but he still thought there was a way they could get off the mountain. October 29th, day 17. Right when this crew probably thought that shit could not get worse, shit gets so much worse. Another massive, tra- massive tragedy strikes the group. Huge avalanche buries a portion of the plane they're living in. Eight more people die. Enrique Platero, Liliana Methel, uh, Gustavo Nikolic, Daniel Mospans, uh, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and uh, Marcela Perez. The plane of 45, now down to 19. The team devastated by the loss of their captain, especially, and the loss of Liliana. She had become a mother figure to the group and, quote, nursed the survivors like a mother and a saint. Let's look at how this happened in more detail, or when, I guess. 4 p.m. on the 29th, the group went into the fuselage for the night because of the cold and snow. The sun was setting at, at 4 p.m. Uh, they'd be hearing avalanches off in the distance all day, but according to Roberto, the idea of being caught in an avalanche was as alien as it had once been to believe we could be involved in a plane crash. It was something that would happen somewhere else because we'd already had our share of bad luck. They later slept, uh, you know, a little bit uh, for, for the night, early in the evening. And then the plane is buried, uh, you know, by the initial avalanche. And then, um, the, yeah, three feet of snow roughly get into the fuselage. And a bunch of the survivors quickly notice they're suffocating. Ro- Roy Harley, woken up by the roar of snow dis- descending upon them. Initially, it was three feet. More comes after. Uh, he jumped up, immediately buried up to his hips. He sees that everyone is lay- uh, laying down is buried. Starts frantically digging for bodies. He's terrified he'll be stranded all alone. Nando wrote, I woke frightened and disoriented as a huge and heavy force thumped against my chest. Something was terribly wrong. I felt an icy wetness pressing against my face and a crushing weight bore down on me so hard it forced the air from my chest. After a moment of confusion, I realized what happened. An avalanche had rolled down the mountain and filled the fuselage with snow. Roberto was buried next to his friend. Uh, He recalls feeling suffocated, couldn't breathe, couldn't see, couldn't hear until someone pushed the snow off his face and then he quickly freed himself and helped dig for others. Roberto tried to dig out Daniel Maspons, but was too late. Daniel had already suffocated. Nando Parado found a metal pole, managed to poke a hole in the fuselage to provide some ventilation, you know, so they didn't run out of fucking oxygen. Survivors now truly felt like they were in hell, buried alive alongside the freshly deceased. Roberto later said this was the first time he ever felt envy for a dead person. A second avalanche actually happened later that night, but the plane was already buried deep enough that the snow just rolled off and didn't cause further damage. Fucking Andes, man. What an unforgiving, terrible place for them to be stranded. On Halloween, October 31st, two days uh, after, after two days of being trapped in the fuselage, 
Their 19th day on the mountain, the survivors dig a hole from the cockpit to the surface, finally escaping the plane. They got out by sitting in the captain's chair, taking turns kicking at the windshield. One man finally managed to break it, and then they had to dig through the snow to get out. After all they'd been through, and now this. And they still have 53 days left to go. Eee. Outside, they were met with a, a harsh blizzard. Their shitstorm continues. They're forced to return to their icy prison. For three days now, they're trapped, buried in snow, surrounded by corpses. They had no choice but to eat them. Roberto told the Independent, we had no food. Even the frozen bodies we were relying on outside to stay alive had been swept away. Everyone was waiting for someone to do something or for no one to do anything and just let the end come. That's when I steeled myself to do what needed to be done, to use one of the bodies of the newly dead. And so we took yet another step in the descent towards our ultimate indignity, to eat the body of the person lying next to us. Each of us would have to be stained with, it, with this blood if we were able to keep the seed of life from withering. I mean, this is just horror movie stuff. No time to dry the meat, just ripping raw flesh from people they had been talking to a day or even just hours earlier, covering themselves in blood. This is some walking dead shit. Really, really want to say something else about Papa John's right now, but I'm not, I'm not going to. For the record, I'm not saying anything about better ingredients, fresher friends, Papa John's. <laughs> After Marcelo's death, I know that's so stupid, but I can't stop myself. Uh, Eduardo Strouch, Fido Strouch, Daniel Fernandez take on group leadership roles. They approve group decisions. People look to them for guidance for a while. Over the next few weeks, few survivors here and there make small excursions, try and pinpoint their location, but none of them make it very far. And they come back, you know, they get too sick, too weak. Nando, meanwhile, continues to hold out hope that they can still make it out alive. He's constantly daydreaming, scheming about how he could maybe escape all of this. Thoughts of overcoming the incredible tragedy is what get him through the times of suffering on the mountain. He plans his ascent, his supplies, who he's going to take with him, uh, his climbing techniques over and over in his head. He later wrote, I would be the engine that pulled us to the mountains. Roberto's cantankerous spirit would be the clutch that prevented me from revving out of control. I knew Roberto would make me stronger and better on the journey. He was the one I needed by my side. Eventually, he will share his plan with the rest of the group, and this plan will become their last hope. After nearly 60 fucking days of wasting away, over 50 days of feasting on their friends, Nando and Roberto would uh, either make it to help or die trying. Way before then, everyone agreed to help prepare these two men and three others for uh, another journey to try and save everyone. Nando promises uh, he'll have everyone home by Christmas. And, uh, and he would. Uh, the group ch- uh, chooses Roberto Canessa, Numa Takati, Antonio Tintin, Vicentin, Nando Parado, and Fido Strouch uh, to be the original big escape expedition members. These men got the largest portions of food, the warmest clothes, didn't have to uh, do any manual labor so they could build their strength. None of those guys had to eat butthole. Not a, not a one, right? Mm-mm, not when you were one of the expeditionaries. Uh, Roberto urged the group to wait to let, uh, let the temperatures rise before heading out. The original team of five would soon be cut to four. Fido developed painful hemorrhoids. I was eliminated from the expedition. Numa was soon then eliminated because someone stepped on his leg and the bruise became septic. Fucking Roberto probably did that. He liked to mash people sometimes when he was uh, in a hurry, I guess. Uh, Numa never ate enough and his body had no strength to fight out the infection that followed. He became very depressed after they kicked him out of the expedition and then started refusing to eat. Once the three were ready to leave, they decided to head east. Economic student Arturo Neguera told Roberto, how lucky you are that you can walk for us. No pressure. November 17th, 1972, day 36. Nando, Roberto, Tintin, head out on the first day of this expedition. They leave at 8 a.m. Initially, they thought that the entire hike out of the mountains would only take uh, three, four days. After a few hours of hiking, they find the tail of the aircraft and are surprised. They thought it was much further away. Inside, some luggage. They find chocolates. Oh, man, how happy were they? Uh, Old empanadas, rum, cigarettes, clothes, comic books, medicine, and a camera. 
which is how they took some of the pictures of themselves on the mountain that you can now find online. Nando took the camera because, quote, I thought that if we didn't make it out alive, someone might find the camera and develop the film, and they would know that we had lived at least for a while. They also found radio batteries, undamaged and intact. They camped inside the tail, ate some of the food, uh, read comic books. Uh, actually, I think they might have eaten all the food. Uh, enjoyed the, the warmth of finally being able to build a fire. Later that day, poor passenger Arturo Neguera uh, passes away back at the fuselage camp. Probably should have uh, made this clear uh, way earlier, but the, oh yeah, I think I did. The fuselage is the, yeah, the main body of the plane. I, I, I already said that. Uh, November 18th, day 37. The group of three hikes out for uh, day two of their expedition. They misjudge their timing and are forced to camp outside and nearly freeze to death. They dig a big trench in the snow, uh, not enough to protect them from the cold though. They sleep as close together as they can, constantly hit their arms and legs to keep blood flowing. Uh, Roberto insists that they go back to the, t- <laughs> so stupid. Uh, this, I, this is just hitting me right now. I probably should just keep this inside. But when they're trying to sleep as close as possible as they can, I, I picture them just rationalizing just like big spoon, medium spoon, smaller spoon, but like so close. It has to be like, there's literally nothing sexual about it, but they have to go penis inside of the next guy just to be like that tight together. Like that somehow keeps them alive. <laughs> I have those thoughts. Roberto insists that they go back to the tail, remove the batteries, head back to the fuselage so they can uh, power up the radio and call for help. So that's what they do. On November 19th, they return to the tail, find that the batteries, though, are too heavy to take back. Fuck. They decide to return to the fuselage, disconnect the radio, carry that back to the tail. When the men return to the fuselage, they tell the group they had found uh, more coats, cigarettes, rum, half-eaten empanadas, uh, batteries, chocolate, but, uh, you know, all that stuff was too heavy to bring back. And they decided to take the radio to the batteries. Uh, That's what's written in some of the sources. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure the fuselage group was super excited to hear about all the cool shit they found that they weren't bringing back to them. Oh, oh my God, you guys. We found so much cool shit. Uh, Rum, soda, crackers, cheese, coats, blankets, empanadas, rotisserie chickens, bread, peanut butter, jelly, space heaters, Captain Crunch cereal, milk, coffee maker, microwave, hot tub, sexy women, restaurant, hospital, casino, so much stuff. And we can't bring it back. We decided not to bring any of it fucking back. So you'll, you won't touch a single piece of any of that. Just thought that you would want to know, oh my God, we had such a great time when you guys were laying here weak and diving and just dying and starving. Uh, returning to the tale, the expedition group brought uh, engineering student Roy Harley with them. What they didn't know was that the batteries, not enough voltage and their plan was going to fail. Also on November 19th, passenger Rafael Estevaran, a dairy farming student, uh, dies from gangrene. Well, you know, at least, he, at least he died knowing that there was a lot of cool shit, you know, close by that he would never touch. Group of 45 now down to 17. November 23rd, Roy, Nando, Tintin, Roberto dislodge the radio from the fuselage's cockpit. This pointless task takes them the entire day. November 24th, the four men take the shattered pieces of the radio, put them on a sled, hike towards the tail. They work from the 24th to the 27th to try and fix the radio, but can't make it work. They do manage to broadcast a shortwave signal, but can't get a super VHF signal to actually communicate with any planes. All they hear is static. Feeling defeated, they decide to march home. November 29th, day 48. The men's last night sleeping in the tail section. Uh, They find insulating fabric that they'll later use to make a sleeping bag. And they will make a later trek off the mountain. And that will make a later trek off of the mountain possible. So, uh, you know, the trip back to the tail, not totally in vain. November 30th, the men uh, began to hike back to the fuselage. On the way back, Nando, Roy, Roberto, Tintin trapped in another blizzard. Oh, sweet. Roy has just fucking had it. He literally just lays down to die. He's done. 
Uh, Roy and Nando had gotten left behind in the blizzard while Roberto and Tintin walked ahead of them. Uh, Roy was, uh, you know, just felt he was too weak to walk, told Nando, just leave me. Nando started to, starts to walk away at first, then he gets very angry, comes back, lands on Roy, starts punching him, and screams, you son of a whore, you filthy bastard, get on your fucking feet, you miserable motherfucker, stand up or I'll kill you. That really is an exact quote. And the screaming worked, and they made it back alive. I gotta say, I like Nando's leadership style. I like it a lot. Uh, Nando now insisted the group needed to send him and a few others to hike out to get help. But no one wanted to go with him a second time. He kept at it though and eventually persuaded Roberto and Tintin to go with him. The remaining survivors created a sleeping bag so the men could survive sleeping outside. They used insulation from that tail, right? Copper wire, uh, waterproof fabric to make one giant sleeping bag for three guys to sleep in. As I talked about earlier, super spoon tight. Um, or something. Carlitos Paez started to sew it, uh, taught Kochi and Car- Ciarte, Gustavo Zerbino, and Fidel Strouch to sew along with him. December 8th, 19- 1972, day 50 fucking seven. The group heard on a transistor radio, on their transistor radio, the uh, Uruguayan Air Force was going to start searching for them again with helicopters December 10th at 7 a.m. This caused a lot of debate amongst the group. Should they wait or should they attempt another hike out? Roberto and Nando get in a big fight over this. Roberto wants to wait for the rescue teams, but Nando tells him, I'm leaving on the morning of December 12th. If you aren't ready, I will go without you. Roberto told Nando, you can't leave without me, you stupid bastard. Uh, Nando responded, you heard me. I'm leaving on the 12th with or without you. Nando would get uh, not only Roberto to agree to venture out with him, but also Tintin. Uh, December 11th, 1972, day 60. Law student Numa Tukati dies from starvation. He had begun to refuse to eat human flesh. The survivors, the 16 that remained, devastated at the loss. He was one of their best friends, a source of positivity for them all. He'd been with them for so long throughout all of this. After Numa's death, Roberto and Tintin reluctant to head out, right? They're still considering waiting for like a plane, a helicopter, but many of the members of the group uh, are just a few weeks at most away from definitely dying. And that's a big risk. If it doesn't see him, they're all going to die. The hike is the only thing that they could control uh, and it became the group's only hope. December 12th, 1972, Nando, Roberto, Tintin set out on their hike. As I said, get help or die trying. They have no map, no real supplies, no climbing experience, but they're determined and also terrified. According to Roberto, the decision to leave their new home was more difficult than the decision to eat human flesh had been. They leave at uh, 7 a.m. so they can use the frozen snow to their advantage. They're wearing several layers of clothes, homemade snowshoes, metal walking sticks, and rope. Nando wears three pairs of jeans, three sweaters, polo shirt, four socks wrapped in plastic bags. They hike until approximately noon when they have to stop to put on their snowshoes due to the icy snow beginning to soften a bit. And then they continue all day until the icy winds make them feel nearly frozen and decide to stop and set up camp, which really isn't much. Camp is basically just uh, getting that big homemade sleeping bag ready, digging down a little bit to uh, sink it into the snow. The three men anxiously test it out, waiting to see if uh, it will keep them warm enough to survive the night. And it works like a fucking champ. Those three guys were as snug and protected as, uh, I don't know, random example, three tasty quality pepperoni slices stuffed into a Papa John's epic pepperoni stuffed crust pizza. Better ingredients, less frozen death, Papa John's. I know that is so stupid, but it just makes me laugh. Uh, the men would have to climb from 11,710 feet up to and over a 15,320 foot peak and over the next few days descend into the valleys below. If this is going to work. This initial part of the hike, nearly a straight vertical slope. They had to stop every few yards, catch their breath. Climbing experts recommend that climbers do not ascend more than 1,000 feet per day to give their bodies time to adjust. Roberto, Nando, Tintin climbed twice as far as that in one morning. 
and continue to push their starving bodies despite exhaustion and altitude sickness. Nando later wrote, I knew we were walking ourselves to death, but I couldn't make myself stop. Time was running out for us. And the weaker I grew, the more frantic I became to keep moving. My pain, my body didn't matter anymore. It was just a vehicle now. I would burn myself to ashes if that was what it took to get home. God, I fucking love this determination. The hike was extremely physically difficult. Before he left, a survivor told Roberto, your legs belong to the group, not to yourself. And that would inspire him to keep going because he knew he had 13 people waiting on him. When he felt like he couldn't take another step, he would ask himself, what are you going to do? Die in the snow? This would make him continue on. The only reason the men were able to do uh, so, to continue on, because just pure willpower. They were freezing, starving, exhausted. Now in the midst of a grueling hike capable of killing seasoned mountaineers with proper equipment who were not starving. What these guys were doing was fucking miraculous. But at so many points, it seemed like their miraculous Hail Mary was doomed to fail. They only brought a three-day supply of meat wrapped in a sock because they thought they were so much closer to Curico than they actually were. They also uh, weren't able to stay on top of the snow like they'd hoped with their homemade snowshoes, not consistently. All the men would end up walking up to their hips in snow with Nando leading the way. Man, the energy that would take. Every night of their hike, uh, you know, the, uh, excuse me, every night of the hike, uh, their sleeping bag can serve just enough warmth to keep them from freezing to death. Backing up uh, to the second day of this hike now really quick. Uh, December 13th, 1972, Roberto wants to head east because he thinks he sees a road. He will not find out until much later that he actually does see a road. He and Nando have an argument about which way to go, are unable to make a decision. They split up for part of the day. December 14th, Roberto stays behind at camp for a bit to contemplate his decision. Nando and Tintin uh, head up and reach the base of a 300-foot vertical wall. Nando decides he's going to climb the wall or die trying. This tough, tenacious motherfucker uses a stick to carve steps in the wall and reach the uh, peak before Tintin, that little metal walking stick. Nando thinks he's going to be overlooking the green valleys of Chile now, but instead, all he can see in every direction, more mountains, more snow. Extremely discouraging and depressing. December 15th, the three men reach the summit they've been hiking up. What the men don't know is that they had just hiked up part of Mount Aconcagua, the highest mountain in the Andes that I mentioned earlier, without any hiking equipment or proper clothing. That, that mountain that at its, at its peak, at its highest peak, uh, 22,831 feet. Roberto's first thought when he sees the endless mountains stretching out beyond them is, we are dead. <laughs> he later wrote in his book, I had, I had to survive. How a plane crash in the Andes inspired my calling to save lives, published in 2016. Nando was standing off to the side, staring silently into the distance. After taking a few steps, I could see why. We were at the true summit, and what lay before us to the west was an infinite number of gigantic snowy peaks disappearing into the horizon. Too much for our diminishing strength. I turned around and saw the same landscape for 360 degrees. I felt an unbearable weight on my shoulders. Nando spotted two smaller peaks in the west, not covered with snow, and a valley at the base of those mountains. He knew this was their way out and refused to give up hope and refused to uh, you know, march in any other direction. On the summit, he tells Roberto, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. I mean, fuck yeah. This guy's quotes. Hail, hail Nando. Uh, Roberto responded with, you and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. I don't know if they actually said these things, but this is what they wrote later. Because this is, I mean, this is some like, uh, you know, hero movie shit. But you know what? I'm going I'm I'm to hope that they did say those things. It's crazy. The men realized the hike was going to take much longer than they planned initially. They now send Tintin back, the slowest member, so that the food they brought could last a little bit longer. Uh, Tintin uses a seat cushion as a sled, returns downhill to the crash site in roughly an hour. It had taken him three days to hike up at this point. It took an hour for him to slide back, which shows how steep the climb was. This all sounds like hell 
uh, except for maybe the sledding part. That sounds pretty fun, comparatively at least. I, ho- I, ho- I hope at least for a second on the way down, just to get a little bit of joy, he just let out a little wee, just, you know, just something fun. Uh, December 16th, 1972, Nando Roberto began descending the slope. Now they decide to sled down on their own seat cushions. Love that they brought those for, uh, for this reason. On the first run with them, they almost die. Small avalanche sends them falling down about 600 feet. Thankfully, neither man is injured. That night, they sleep on a ledge with a 20 degree incline. Both men feared falling off the entire night and dying, but they don't. December 17th, day 66. My God, the men continue their hike at 10 AM. They hear a helicopter, but can't see it. So I have no idea if their hike is uh, pointless or if their friends are about to be rescued. Just keep on marching. Roberto Nando finally reached the end of the snow on this day. See drinkable water for the first time in months. Roberto wrote, on the sixth day hiking across the mountains, I learned that when you're tiptoeing the line between life and death, you don't despair. You either live or die. You quit or you fight on. When you decide you won't resign yourself to dying, you find a strength you never knew you had. And you push beyond the limits of what you thought was possible. That's how I survived the sixth day. Something came alive inside me. Something that went beyond will. I fucking love this story. I mean, I mean, these parts of it. Not so much the parts of dying and eating, you know, friends and stuff. Uh, December 18th, the men reach that green valley that they'd seen from the top of the summit. They find the source of uh, the Rio San Jose in Argentina, a river that joins another river, then another, uh, eventually leading to a village in Chile. They follow the river and see signs of life for the first time since the crash. That night, they find an abandoned campsite, first sign of any human activity. Can't imagine how good that felt. Well, normally it would feel great, but by this point, both Nando and Roberto's bodies are really starting to uh, shut down from lack of food and just exhaustion. Their legs are numb, toes are turning black, hearts constantly pounding from exertion, skin turning a greenish-white color. Up on the mountain, the sun had been setting at 4 p.m. Now at 4.30, sun's still out. This meant it's no longer blocked by the mountains anymore. They're heading in the right direction. They keep going. December 19th, they come across some river rapids, decide to follow it southwest to see if the water will be low enough to cross. It's still cold, but there's no more snow. Roberto notices how much more oxygen there is at this altitude. His mind feels clearer. He also sees a lizard, first animal he had seen in two months. They eventually cross the river, losing a bottle of rum they'd brought and getting soaked. But with wood around now, they're able to make a substantial fire. For the first time in two months, they get warm at night. December 20th, day 69. The two men start their day by waking up with red bumps all over their bodies. They've been bitten by mysterious bugs in the night. Shit just keeps getting better. These poor bastards. Uh, Roberto finds a stoop can. Nando insists it must have just fallen out of a plane. But then Roberto finds a horseshoe. Argues with Nando. Horseshoes don't fall out of planes. Civilization is close. They both then spot cows, a sign that a shepherd could be nearby. Nando's still reluctant, though, to get his hopes up, only to be disappointed. Later that day, they find piles of chopped wood, an animal pen, and boot prints. Right? They're so close. They sit down to rest early that night. Roberto thinks he can't go on any longer. He's become sick with dysentery from drinking river water. Now he's got now he's got McGill's pop to worry about on top of everything else. He's very weak. The two men are sitting there having a debate on uh, if they should kill one of the cows for food or not when they see a man riding a horse 300 yards away on the other side of the river. Roberto tells Nando to run after him. And he does exactly that as best he can. He jogs down, calls for help, sees uh, not one as he gets closer, but three men. Nando tries to shout at them from across the river, but but uh, no one can hear him. He tries his best to show he needs help. And then one of the men finally seems like he understands. And then this man incredibly 
recognizes him. He's the open side flanker for the old Gregonian rugby team. Holy shit! Game on, motherfuckers! Nando immediately breaks into a song. Conga, conga, conga. Most of our guys are dead. I'm very hungry. And the other guy is near, but he shit his brains out. But we still have enough fight to fuck you up. Woo! Let's go! Let's fucking go! Match breaks out in minutes. Nando and Roberto take out three of these son of bitches and the rest of the old Grand Goyan squad, 27 to 24, boom. Then they take off their clothes, streak victorious down the valley, into town, pound some beers before putting together a rescue team. They know their teammates will understand. They've done it. And you know damn well that didn't happen. Now, one of the men across the river yells, tomorrow, Nando and Roberto just have to make it one more night on their own. This man, Sergio Catalan, then throws Nando some loaves of bread across the river. Oh, must have felt so good. He proceeds to ride then eight hours straight on horseback to contact local police. On the road, he meets another shepherd, asks him to go get the men, bring them back to the village of Los Matenas. Uh, Sergio follows the river to a bridge that links the village of Puente Negro to the holiday resort of Termas de Flaco. He stops a truck. They drive to the local police station at Puente Negro. The police send news to the army command in San Fernando, Chile, uh, who then contact the army in Santiago. December 21st, 1972, day 70. Early that morning, Sergio sends two of his friends to meet with Roberto and Nando while he rides back after making contact with Army Command in Santiago. Just before sunrise, Roberto sees a flicker of light. The horseman had lit a fire so they could see him. Roberto still feels weak and paralyzed. Nando approaches the fire, sees three figures sitting on boulders, two men and a boy. Nando tries to talk to them, but he still, they can't hear him over the river. His voice is just too weak. So the men throw him some paper and pencil that they tied to a rock. Smart. Nando wrote, I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking We have been walking for 10 days. Oh my God, after all that. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plain, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? The man read it, then gave them a signal that he understood. Two hours later, a rider came into the clearing on his horse. He was a farmer a Mapuche man, member of a group of indigenous inhabitants of present-day south-central Chile and southwestern Argentina named Armando Cerda. Sergio had sent uh, him after, yeah, Sergio had sent him after he rode to the police station. Armando took them to some cabins by a pasture. They meet another farmer named Enrique Gonzalez. They learned that they were in Los Mateñas. Enrique gave them a bowl of soup with beans, noodles, and beef, first hot meal, hot meal in 70 fucking days. At 6 p.m., Sergio and 10 men from the police station arrived. Roberto Nando speak with Sergeant Orlando Menares, who asked them to show them on the map where the survivors were. They spent most of the night answering questions, talking about everything, you know, but the cannibalism. They had agreed previously as a group to never discuss it. But then the police found out anyway. Nando, absent mindedly, took an old teammate's finger out of his back pocket, chewed on it nervously. It was a nasty habit he picked up in the mountains. JK, come on. Uh, when Nando tried to show the police where the survivors were, they didn't believe that he had crossed the Andes. They insisted that he and Roberto. They were crazy from starvation. That wasn't possible what he was trying to tell them. It took him a few hours to convince them that he was telling the truth. And I get it. This whole story is unbelievable. It feels more like a movie than real life. Nando and Roberto then taken to the village of Los Montañez on uh, horseback. I think I was saying it wrong earlier, but uh, the Chilean Air Force sent out helicopters to Los uh, Montañez to interview Roberto and Nando and Nando agreed to take them to the mountain. And on the way there, the fucking helicopter crashes. That motherfucker now had to spend another 30 days living in the wreckage of that copter had to eat a couple Air Force dudes to survive. Now, can you imagine though? I wonder if he was worried about that uh, uh, crashing on the way up. I probably would be. I'd be so nervous about something else going wrong. Or maybe he's just too tired and beat up to care about anything other than saving his friends and you know just being done with all this. 
Eduardo Strouch recalls hearing on the radio news that Nando and Roberto had been rescued. He said life flooded back into everyone. It was the resurrection of the dead. Hail Nimrod. Uh, December 22nd, 1972, day 71, six survivors are rescued from the crash site. The helicopters, too small to take all 14. Damn weather, still dangerous. Members of the Chilean rescue team spend the night with the remaining survivors at the crash site. December 23rd, final eight survivors are rescued, bringing an end to 72 days on the mountain. 16 of the original 45 had survived. The plane crash, starvation, extreme weather, a gigantic avalanche, daily mental battle of surviving on a frozen, barren mountain, completely cut off from the outside world, having no idea if anyone would ever find you. The final survivors were Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, Carlos Paez Rodriguez, Jose Pedro Agorta, Alfredo Delgado, Daniel Fernandez, Roberto Francois, Roy Harley, Jose Luis Enciarte, Alvaro Mangino, Javier Methol, Ramon Savella, Savella, uh, Adolfo Strauch, Eduardo Strauch, Antonio Vicentin, Tintin, and Gustavo Serbino. The same day news reports of cannibalism are published worldwide, except for in Uruguay. Journalists found those poor and lucky but lucky bastards as soon as they returned. At first, the survivors said they ate cheese, airplane food, uh, plants, and herbs. But no one was buying that because plants and herbs don't grow at that altitude. The truth quickly comes out. Guessing those rescue team members also probably noticed, you know, eating dead bodies near the wreckage the night they stayed there. Um, When Roberto returned home, he felt it was his duty to visit the parents of the dead and tell them exactly what had happened. Can you imagine that conversation? I loved your son. He was one of my best friends. And to be totally honest, probably the the tastiest passenger on on the entire flight. Better ingredients, taste your friends, Papa John's. <laughs> I know I'm a fucking idiot. Uh, Nando also brought them letters written by his friends uh, that had their last thoughts. I mean, good on him again. December 26, 1972, pictures taken by the Andean Relief Corps of a half-eaten leg are printed in two Chilean newspapers, leading to public outrage, accusations now of murder. Two days later, December 28th, the survivors hold a press conference at Stella Maurice College in Montevideo, 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 my God, uh, Uruguay. More and more headlines are stating that the men had murdered their friends for food and they want to correct those rumors. Alfredo Delgado speaks uh, for them, says their actions were like the Last Supper. He also explained the pact the men made. Uh, And after this, and after people began to really understand the living hell these guys had gone through, public backlash goes away. Thank God. Catholic Church also publicly absolves them of any guilt. January 18th, 1973, 12 officers and a priest are transported to the crash site to make a common grave for the dead there. Family's not allowed to attend the blessing of the site. It's too dangerous to bring too many people. They don't want to risk more death in the Valley of Tears. The inscription on the plaque at their gravesite reads, the world to its Uruguayan brothers. Close, O oh God, to you. I've read that probably 10 times. I have no fucking idea what it means. I even checked a few sites to make sure I wasn't, uh, you know, misquoting it. Feels to me a little bit like uh, something there is lost in translation, but maybe I'm just being done with that. Uh, the authorities then destroy the remains of the fuselage. October 13th, 2012 now, 40th anniversary of the crash. The old Christians played the old Grangonian, the team they were supposed to play back in 1972. And the game ended in a 1-1 tie. So everything they went through, including surviving, was for fucking nothing. Conga, conga, conga. We should have never gotten that plane because we don't have what it fucking takes to win. The game really was played. And they really did tie. Guessing they weren't going all out. And kind of fucked up that old Grangonian uh, didn't let the survivors win, right? I mean, that does seem actually super weird to me. One of those old Grangonian guys, what an asshole for scoring. <laughs> Good thing that plane crashed, pussies. 
We would have mopped the fucking floor with you. Survivor Daniel Fernandez told a Guardian reporter at the game, if I had been told I'm going to leave you in a mountain 4,000 meters high, 20 degrees Celsius below zero in shirt sleeves, I would have said I last 10 minutes. Instead, I lasted 72 days. I mean, that shit is crazy. What a tale of survival against all odds. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up and get out of our timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So do you think you could live some, uh, through something like that? I- I'm not sure I could. I would like to say I could, but this sure seems like a case of you're just never going to know unless you're tested. And I really don't want to be tested like that. No one on board that plane had any training in survivalism. No one was adjusted to life at extremely high altitude. No one was adjusted for winter survival. Uruguay rarely gets any snow. Montevideo, where they went to school, uh, very mild climate. June is the coldest month. And the average low for that month, only 47 degrees Fahrenheit. They had youth, had athleticism on their side, but not much else. I completely understand why this disaster is called the miracle of the Andes. I mean, it really does seem miraculous. They should not have survived, but they were so determined to live. They fought so damn hard, pushed their bodies past what should be possible. Very inspiring to me. I can't imagine how tempting it would be just to, uh, just to give up. Right, just lay down, let the cold rob you of uh, first your consciousness, you know, and, your, and the pains you're feeling from starvation, et cetera, and then your life. But they didn't do that. They lived, and many went on to live incredible lives. Nando Parada went on to become a, a popular motivational speaker, author, TV host. Roberto Canessa became a noted physician, a pediatric cardiologist, an author, also a motivational speaker. 1994, even ran for president of Uruguay. Uh, let's look back on uh, this story one more time. Share something new as well in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Flight 571 crashed on October 13th, 1972 because of a combination of bad weather, pilot inexperience, and failed instrument readings. After co-pilot LaGuara LaGuarara, uh, incorrectly read their altitude, he descended, then was unable to pull up high uh, fast enough uh, to make it over the mountain in front of him. The plane clipped the mountain, leading to the fatal crash that led to the 72-day ordeal. If pilot uh, Ferratas had been flying, the more experienced pilot, would he have read the instruments correctly? Could he have uh, avoided the crash? Possibly. The plane also crashed, I didn't uh, uh, state this earlier, on Friday the 13th. And the group had even joked about flying on an unlucky day before they went on the flight. Uh, You know, shortly before, because it was delayed by that day. And man, did they turn out to be right. Number two, the group was forced to resort to cannibalism to survive beginning on day nine. Because caloric needs are increased at high altitudes, they felt the effects of starvation much sooner than they would have if they had been stranded at a lower altitude. Roberto Canessa made the first cut into a human body and set the example by eating the first piece of human flesh. Over time, the passengers eventually got used to eating human meat. They understood that it was the only way to survive. Many of the men made a pact that if they died, their friends could eat their bodies to survive. Number three, the Strouch cousins, some of the unsung heroes of this group. They took over as leaders after the avalanche. Fido Strouch's inventiveness uh, saved the survivors from dying of thirst. He made them snowshoes, sunglasses. He and his cousins took over as butchers to prevent the others from having to see where their meat came from. Number four, I cannot apologize enough for the tasteless Papa John's commercial in today's episode. Uh, They literally had someone point a gun in my head. And if I would not have read that, they would have killed me. Better ingredients, Taste your podcast host, Papa John's. Uh, 
No, uh, two men made a 10-day hike out of the mountains to uh, find help. Roberto Canessa and Nando Parado, they hiked straight, uh, basically a vertical climb for the first three days with no protective gear, no climbing equipment, only a homemade sleeping bag to keep them warm at night. Took a route the professional climbers uh, would have balked at, would have not dared to hike, and they fucking made it. When Nando tried to show the police officers where the group was and where they had hiked from, it seemed so completely impossible that they did not believe them. They thought they were insane from starvation. Number five, new info. I first heard about this story when I watched the 1993 movie Alive. Based on the book Alive, the story of the Andes survivors, written by Piers Paul Reed, first published in 1974. Film was uh, shot in British Columbia, uh, narrated by John Malkovich. Ethan Hawke played Nando Parado, and the real Nando served as a technical advisor for the film. Josh Hamilton played Roberto Canessa. The film portrayed the events fairly factually, uh, but not, did not receive critical acclaim. Uh, one of the biggest knocks against the movie was that the actors didn't look starved enough by the end. But come on. The story is so fucking horrific. It uh, feels like, like uh, asking a huge ensemble cast to starve themselves for a couple months and become horrifyingly emaciated by the end of the filming. Pretty ridiculous ask. Pretty big expectation. Uh, the film, a lot of people don't know this, was produced by Papa John's Pizza. The company, <laughs> so, company got a lot of kickback for using the movie to heavily promote a new Meat Lovers uh, stuffed crust that also debuted in 1993. And I'm done now with the Papa John's horseshit. Let's, uh, let's get out of here. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Alive. The 1972 Andy Slight disaster has been sucked. Hope you found that tale as gripping as I do. Uh, now time for some thanks. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Joe Paisley and Logan Keith for production today. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Yart Warlock, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and running socials with Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks again to Olivia Lee for initial research this week. She came out to the Suck Dungeon and hopefully not too horrified by seeing all the uh, ridiculous shit here in person. I think she's, I think she's had a good time. Uh, also thanks to the all seen eyes moderating the cult of the curious private Facebook page. Finally, thanks to Becky, Jesse and the mod squad for making sure discord keeps running through and actually not finally, because I keep going back to the time suck, uh, subreddit, a lot of fun in there next week. The space lizards have chosen to suck on some mysterious disappearances. Uh, they've also chosen to suck on some mysterious reappearances, a two for the price of one enigmatic super deal. And a super deal that includes some not so mysterious cases of people seriously fucking up their plans to vanish into thin air. Look at these puzzling cases of people both ancient and modern who have disappeared only to reappear under strange circumstances. We will journey into the worlds of crime, insurance fraud, professional disappearing services, and uh, amnesia. We'll look at recent cases that have made waves like the disappearance and reappearance of a California woman, Sherry Papino, as well as historical cases that continue to be unexplained, like the 11-day disappearance of famed mystery writer Agatha Christie. We'll also look at the disappearances of some infamous Nazis in South America and some modern-day war, war criminals who are still on the run. This will truly be a, uh, a pastiche of some of humanity's craziest tendencies. The tendency to leave it all behind, to start a new life, to fake a kidnapping or assault, to commit identity theft, to pay back a cheating husband or ungrateful kid in the most insane ways possible. All of this and more next week's Here One Day, Vanish the Other, Secret Life, Is My Dad Even Truly Who He Says He Is? Episode of Time Suck. And now we're going to head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Bunch of DC Snipers updates came in uh, over the past few days. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Uh, first update coming in from Super Sucker Jack Erlenbaugh. Uh, I thought my longtime agent and friend uh, had written in under a pseudonym at first. His name is Joe Eschenbaugh. Jack Erlenbaugh 
Feels like bizarro world version of Joe Eschenbach. Anyway, uh, Jack, not Joe, wrote, Hey, Master the Suck and all the awesome meat sacks at the Suck Dungeon and behind the scenes at Time Suck. I listen religiously, although I'm not super religious anymore. Unless you count worship of Nimrod, may his name be praised. Sorry for the length, but I have a connection to the sniper attacks I had to share. Uh, My wife of four years actually grew up just outside of D.C. in the northern Virginia town of Alexandria. She doesn't listen to the suck, uh, but I wanted to write in and tell you guys about her perspective having lived through the 9-11 attacks and then also having to deal with the D.C. sniper attacks. Side note, but Alexandria is the home of uh, George Mason and it's got the original Freemason Lodge first established in the U.S., It has weird geometric designs in the city planning, tons of monuments, old and new, not to mention being named for the ancient city of Egypt. And a lot of wackadoodles think it's a new world order. uh, It has new world order level of significance. (laughs) It's not Uh, just a super cool little town on the Potomac, not far from DC proper. Anyways, my wife and her family live five miles from the Pentagon, Alexandria, and described to me how they had friends that worked in the Pentagon the day of the September 11th attacks. My wife says she remembers playing inside with friends when they heard the plane hit the Pentagon. It was a massive crash that she said was unlike anything she'd heard before. A lot of her friends described the same things, not knowing if their parents and family members who worked for the Department of Defense were living or dead and the absolute chaos that followed. Imagine living an innocent life up until that point, going on walks with your family on the National Mall, 20 minutes away by car, uh, going on a hike to Roosevelt Island, 25 minutes away or so, a massive and gorgeous natural island in the Potomac that Teddy protected during his presidency, or even just going to church and living a normal life. Suddenly a place that many friends and family lived and worked near, and a city she loved her entire life was completely unsafe. Not just unsafe, deadly and unpredictable. Fast forward a year, things started calming down, people are getting back to normal, felt safe to be a citizen of D.C. again, and then suddenly some asshole with a gun decides to start shooting at people. It was madness. Another side note, but D.C. is one of the only metropolitan areas that has a height restriction on buildings inside the district itself. The lawmakers wanted the Washington Monument to stand out as the tallest thing around. Some other towns in the vicinity of Maryland and Virginia passed similar laws. This led to a very distinctive downtown area with beautiful but short buildings. Perfect, absolutely perfect for a rifleman to shoot from. My wife was one of the schools that had recessed inside for almost two months during and following the attacks. My wife began being afraid to go to school, to play outside, to stop with her parents to get gas or groceries on the way to and from different places in D.C. Everyone she knew avoided downtown proper and even stopped traveling in general, taking time off work and preferring instead to hoard groceries like it was in the first days of the pandemic rather than risk a trip to the grocery store. When it was clear that multiple people were arrested and the police caught multiple snipers, D.C. had a hard time trusting being out in public again. To this day, my wife still has trouble with anxiety in the city because of those attacks. Uh, Luckily, D.C. is a resilient and welcoming community, so they bounce back. However, the entire city culturally and traumatically was completely changed as a result. Once again, I apologize for the length. Incidentally, I'm moving to Alexandria this next month, so I'm trying to stockpile Bad Magic podcasts in order to pass the time packing. Thank you so much for reading. Time Suck is great. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Nimrod, may his name be praised, Jack. Well, thank you for sending that in, Jack. Uh, Damn, man. Yeah, so much widespread and long-lasting terror. Spread by two guys. Uh, spread because one guy wanted to get back at his ex-wife in the craziest of ways. Uh, feel bad for your wife. Yeah, that is going to push an unusual, atypical amount of fear and paranoia into one's childhood. You know, right after a plane crash into the Pentagon to have this random fucking roving snipers. Man, uh, what jo- John Muhammad and Lee Mo- Boyd Malvo did. It really is just such a crazy story. Uh, thank you for adding a human touch to it. Now another DC Snipers related message coming in from Silly Sack, Adam Gittemeyer. Adam wrote, 
So your last suck about the DC sniper actually had me starting to feel bad for the guy too. So much so that I was thinking the exact same thing you said right before you said it. I actually asked myself, do I really feel sorry for this kid? Not that I would ever condone or excuse his ultimate behavior. Now for something that really shows why I must feel crazy. My best, or why I must be crazy. Uh, My best friend since I was a kid, my uncle Steve, who passed away a few years back, could truthfully say smoking a cigarette saved his life. He was drafted in Vietnam while serving at one point was in Germany, had stepped out of the building he was in to have a smoke by the dumpster. While having said smoke that day, bomb went off, blowing up the building he was just in moments before. (laughs) That is preposterous. Well, the same uncle went on to become a barge captain and for a good while living in Virginia, commuted a lot through uh, DC all the way to Texas was driving down that famed beltway and yep, you guessed it, was shot at by the DC sniper. The shot ended up uh, getting his back window blown out. The man had a few lives to say the least. My best friend, we were always close yet somehow after that story, I actually still feel bad for that kid. And honestly, he would have too if he would have known. Just thought thought I'd leave that here for you to stick in your pipe and suck on it. Oh, and as far as your infamous fake outs, my neighbor could give you a run for your money. Damn, he's good at it too. Of course, his truths are worse than the fake outs uh, you do due to serving in Afghanistan. Suck on, and as my uncle would often say, no good everyday sunfish motherfucker, peace. Well, Adam, your uncle said some weird shit. And I like it. I bet it was a lot of fun. Uh, sorry to hear he passed, but it sounds like he, uh, he led a long life. Uh, multiple lives. Man, two very close brushes with unusual deaths. Sources don't uh, exactly say how many people in total those two guys shot at. I, I, I mean, I doubt anybody knows. Uh, I wonder how many others like your uncle had close brushes with death from a sniper's, you know, random bullet like that. Hail Nimrod and thank you for sharing. One more DC snipers update from DC area meat sack, Andrew Balderson. Andrew wrote, Hey Dan, I just listened to the episode on DC snipers. I live in the area. It was a sophomore in high school at the time of their spree. I remember all too well, the terror they invoked on the area in school. We weren't allowed to be near windows. We were supposed to run to the buses or cars before and after school. That's crazy. People were generally afraid to pump gas. People were in general afraid to be anywhere outside where you were exposed. I remember specifically while in history class, a girl being called to the office. She came back crying and sobbing uncontrollably. As it turned out, the gentleman that was killed while mowing grass was a very close family friend of hers. It was incredibly sad, made the chaos we were seeing on the news really hit home. I'll never understand the senseless tragedies. I also remember that after the snipers were arrested, a local newspaper had an article explaining the snipers were planning on targeting the Outback Steakhouse in Frederick, Maryland next. Allegedly, they had a target in mind, someone who worked there. I always found it incredibly uneasy to think that they were scoping out places. Whomever the employee at Outback was uh, is incredibly lucky. I just wanted to share a few things from perspective of someone who lives in the area. Also, if by chance you read this, I would love to give a shout out to my sister, Amy, and her fiance, Larry. They're big fans of the podcast. It's something we talk about and share a laugh with together. They're getting married in about a month. I would love to share my well wishes and happiness for them both. I hope you, uh, I hope you two have a lifetime of happiness. I just hope they enjoy some Whipple and make the wedding night crazy. Also, I'd be keeping an eye on our father the day of her wedding. Much like yourself, I have no idea of his whereabouts most of the time. And if I'm being honest, I don't trust him. I feel he's responsible for quite a few of your sucks. It's only a matter of time until the old man gets lazy and I'll be there to catch him. I'm shocked he's gotten away with it this long, but not anymore. Dad watch will put an end to his life of crime. Updates to come. Anyway, sorry, not sorry for the length of the message. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Hail Nimrod. Thank you, Dan, and the entire Time Suck team. Andrew Balderson. Well, thank you, Andrew. I don't understand these uh, census tragedies either. So many people hurt for the dumbest reasons. And I hope you catch that son of a bitch. Hope uh, Dad watch comes through with you. And hello, Amy and Larry. Thanks for listening to this insanity every week. Congrats on getting married. I have some advice too. Uh, be sure to... Uh, Suck each other's dicks a lot. 
It's going to help with happiness. It's going to reduce a lot of tension. Or suck each other's clits. Or clit dicks. Or dicks and clits. Whatever you're rocking. You know, suck it. And uh, talk everything out as well. And don't keep secrets. Uh, Hail Lucifina. And actually, I lied. I, so I said last DC related message earlier. We have one more. This, this, is touch, this touches on something uh, I mentioned in the DC Sniper Suck. From military veteran meat sack John Parker, who writes, Good afternoon or morning or whenever the fuck your brain holes intercept this message. I'm a service member and a longtime listener. I've listened to most of your stuff several times over as it helps get me uh, through the long uh, passing hours of my job. Thank you for your commitment to nurturing our brain fields with nutritious head soil. <laughs> week after week, I wanted to reach out while listening to your latest episode about the DC Snipers. I've been waiting for this episode for a while now since it was one of the first major news stories I remember growing up. 9-11 introduced me to the 24-7 news cycle and the real world. This one happened as I started to develop my critical thinking skills and has always stayed with me. I wanted to provide some possible insight on John Muhammad's claims of abuse and ridicule while serving in Operation Desert Storm slash Shield. I agree that much of what he said was exaggerated, but not entirely far-fetched uh, are his claims. Uh, had his Had his unit had a rather relaxed group of NCOs or command structure that enabled his behavior to either poor leadership or lazy leadership. I totally see soldiers fucking around like this. Through my time in the army, I have seen and heard about shit getting out of hand in several instances where it may seem hard to believe that this, in this day and age, this sort of thing can happen, but it does. Like everything, military personnel fall on a bell curve. Some are great. Some are trash. Most are average. Yeah, fair. Unfortunately, sometimes those dumb fuck ass shit (laughs) mouth breathers. On the bottom of the belt, uh, get promoted and uh, put in charge of other soldiers. It's life. The military is still an organization of people. And when those people are a little soft-brained, <laughs> love the way you write, man, uh, then dumb shit happens. Now, I wasn't in the army that John Muhammad was in, but I have been deployed and in combat zones with a line unit, and I can totally see this happening today, let alone 30 years ago. Old-timers call it new army for a reason. I've also seen plenty of soldiers entirely exaggerate claims, so not saying he didn't uh, do that. Uh, However, I listen to that story and hear at least some truth that something like he described happened. Anyway, I could go into way more detail, but I don't want to give service members a bad name because I love being in the military and the people I served with. I'm not naive to its faults, however, but there definitely is, uh, you know, more good than bad. Keep sucking, suck to Miss Prime the third. Uh, Well, John, a nutritious head soil, one of many phrasings in there I loved. Thank you. And thanks for your, uh, your service there. Yeah, you're right. Just because the guy was delusional and lied about other shit doesn't mean that he for sure lied about being abused in the military. Also, it's a good reminder, right? Not to fuck with, uh, with uh, certain people. I mean, really not to fuck with anybody in certain ways. But, but if you're going to, maybe, maybe fuck with your good friends if you're going to play crazy jokes. You know, maybe not do it with somebody you, you don't know that well because they just might be very mentally fragile. You don't know what's going on in their, in their noggin. You know, it might push them over some mental cliff, send them down a dark road. You know, you just never really know what's going on in other people's heads. And sometimes you don't want to know. And you don't want to find out. And you don't want to push him too hard. All right, one more this week. Uh, going to end on something light. Sometimes a random joke, uh, not even a great joke, Papa John's, uh, can hit really hard. Uh, hard enough to literally knock someone over. Like marvelous meat sack Adam Grisham. I love the scene Adam paints for us here. He writes, Greetings, Duke Suck Nasty Supreme. Dan Prophet of Nimrod Cummins. I fell over laughing, man. I was listening to the Chicago Rippers episode. Doing some yard work in my lawn this morning. I have those, uh, I have the hose in one hand, watering my new grass patches. <laughs> My sativa pen in the other hand, the Tony Danza bit comes on, really caught me off guard for some reason. I went weak in the knees, actually fell sideways laughing mid-fall. <laughs> when I hit the ground, I was laughing even harder. I actually curled up into a ball to finish a few loud exhale la- uh, laughing screams. I don't know what I was laughing at harder. You screaming at Tony Danza about where are the bodies or me realizing how absurd it was in the moment that I literally fell over laughing. 
I'm a teacher in this town. I can't be looking crazy in my backyard. I hope you find this story well. Thanks for the laughs. By the way, my wife Courtney and I were able to see you at the Blue Room Comedy Room in Springfield uh, yeah, Comedy Club this, uh, this at the late Saturday show. You shouted my wife out in my last email. My nickname for her is Polka Dots. And when you were on the way to the green room before the show, you waved at the crowd. But at her, she thought she was wearing a cowboy-ish hat looking super fine, I might say. I don't know if you actually made eye contact, but she has been bragging about it ever since. We haven't stopped talking about the show since, especially the stone-faced lady in the back corner that would have uh, been your left face facing the crowd that sat there and judged all of us. She would not laugh at all, man. I wondered if you noticed that. It was an awesome show. Had a great time. Can't wait to see you again if you ever uh, are around the buckle again. Thanks for the laughs. I'm almost sorry for the length of the email, but I'll get over it. Keep on sucking, Adam. Well, Adam, I am so happy that you look like a complete maniac in your yard. I mean, it is so fun to laugh that hard for whatever reason. It's so cathartic. And, and, I, and I think I do remember seeing your wife. Yeah, super fine. So good for you. Good for you both. And uh, I'm not sure if I know the lady you're talking about, the stone face, but I do remember, and I think it was the late show Saturday, because uh, I remember talking about it with Doug Mellard, uh, my buddy of mine that opened up for me on those shows. Uh, this lady, she was next to a guy and I could not stop looking at her because she did not fucking even smile once. Just like hate stared me <laughs> the entire show. Holy shit, did she hate my guts? Uh, you know, you can't, you, you can't win them all. I just remember thinking that like, she must not have known what she was getting into. Like the person she went with must've been coming to the show and she got brought along and then not what she enjoyed. Uh, glad many of you seem to enjoy this. Have a great week, Adam and, and polka dots and everyone else. Hell Nimrod to you all. Next time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another bad magic productions podcast is complete. For better or for worse. If your plane crashes in the mountains this week and you survive the impact, uh, don't wait. Start eating your fellow passengers immediately. Not only will it give you your best chance for continued survival, but it'll uh, also hopefully help you continue to keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Uh, I forgot. I forgot to thank uh, one one entity, if you will. I want to thank uh, Background Music Videos for uh, you know putting uh, on a a three hour video on YouTube, literally just called Pizza Music, music while eating pizza. <laughs> what a, what a world we live in! I just love that someone was like, you know what we need on the internet? Three straight hours of music specifically made for eating pizza, and and they added. <laughs> visuals of people making and eating pizzas in the background. So, you know, if you need if you need some music for an upcoming pizza party, well, just go to YouTube. Oh, it's not over. A little break in between pizza songs. This is like a this is a I don't know, different vibe pizza song. I feel like that first song was like a, you know, like a standard just a pepperoni, something real simple. This is this is fan. This got some feta on it. This is some feta, maybe some artichoke hearts. Maybe some uh, Kalamato olives. I don't know. This fucking gourmet, this gourmet shit, this prosciutto on this pizza. Enjoy your pizza, everybody. Better ingredients. Better podcasts. Papa, who gives a fuck? Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.